Bring it in. Jam-packed, loaded, and fantastic episode of The Read Option coming your way. Ryan Leaf, we got him. Recorded. It's done. Uh, phenomenal interview with Ryan Leaf. Uh, we talk about his podcast, Bus. We talk about his story, uh, which is a phenomenal one of, of growth, learning, perseverance, and and honestly a lot of mental health stuff as well we also cover the nfl draft with him as well as some of the pac-12 you know he's like a diehard pac-12 guy he works pac-12 network pac-12 channel on sirius xm he's a million stuff uh so phenomenal we had him for 40 minutes he was super gracious with his time awesome interview you guys are gonna love that and that will be coming up a little bit later in the show uh no scotty today he is in austin for a wedding so it's me and Vito, a Jeff and Vito pod, which we, you know, we get like one every couple of months and they always end up being real, no disrespect to Scotty. We love the full crew, but I love having moments with each of you guys to do one-on-one pods. And, and, uh, I love when, when I get my man Vito one-on-one, how you doing, buddy? Good, good, man. Great. Um, out in Cleveland now. And, uh, dude, just so excited about this pod. We got a lot of good stuff going on for, for today. And I couldn't believe, um, the day we had in sports yesterday especially for philly which we'll get into and there's just so many things happening right now with the playoffs obviously the draft coming up i mean this is like this is really um i feel like there's a lull after the super bowl a bit you do get the masters but there is a lull uh, march madness i say a lull and i just named two of the major events in all sports, <laughs> so maybe not but i feel i feel like this is getting back into football plus playoffs it's it's great i can't wait for it well, and that's the thing, right? Is like it's it, it is kind of a lull, if we're being honest, but it's it's just that there's nothing substantial, right? It's like the NBA regular season at that point usually feels like it's kind of dragging. And the NBA playoffs are the first thing that's like, all right, we got two months of this and it's gonna be this way, and we're gonna be able to watch basketball every night, and you're gonna have stuff to look forward to every week. Whereas like the NFL season, like you know, you're gonna have that for the full season. The March Madness is like, hey, you get the four days and the four days and then, you know, the final four. And then the Masters is four days and it's over. This is like a substantial. All right, we're going to be talking about this for a couple months. So I think that feeling um, is valid. And so uh, huge news out of Philly, uh, as you said, obviously the Sixers win last night. Bunch of great stuff in the NBA. We're going to cover it all. And then the announcement of Jay Wright retiring uh, 60 years old, I will say, and we'll get into it more. I think he's the greatest coach in Philadelphia sports history. And, uh, and and we'll dive deeper into that as we uh, as we go. But we're going to start with the NBA. And uh, I told you before we got going, I do have a little bit of a, of a short monologue I want to do here. Because last night, Joel Embiid hits a turnaround fadeaway three with 0.9 seconds in the shot clock and with less than two seconds on the game clock for the Sixers to win on the exact same basket that three years ago Kawhi Leonard hit one of the most insane shots in the history of basketball in a game seven in Toronto on their way to go win a title. And a lot of people shared, you know, the memes of, you know, Joel Embiid crying, which like, I don't know why you clown him for that. Like I want my superstar to care that much. Like it's an amazing thing. Yeah. But that was also part of what reminded me last night about why, why we do this, why we do Pod, why we do this pod, why I got into the industry as a whole. And I have a pretty firm rule that I don't like to get into it with people on Twitter. 
I don't deal with trolls. I don't go back and forth with people. I share my thoughts. If it's a friend, I like to respond. We'll go back and forth. But I don't like to get into it with random accounts on Twitter. And last night, I was on one a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I, I broke my rule. And, and I kind of got into it with, with this guy who's a, just a fucking loser. Just an absolute fucking loser. And the reason I did was partially because I was mad at myself. Because I take my job and my career very seriously. I try really hard to be unbiased. I try to understand the bigger picture. I try to analyze the game as, as a whole, whatever sport it might be, whether it's football, basketball, you know, baseball, college, whatever it is, I, I try really hard to be objective. And in the last four years since leaving college, and even in my senior year when I was covering it, I definitely wanted to remove the fan in me in order to be objective. And last night was a reminder of why we care about this shit in the first place. Because the whole point of sports is to have fun. There's so much shit in the world. I got called a fucking piece of shit because I was screening calls for a political talk radio channel yesterday. That is the kind of misery that exists in the world. And sports is an escape from all that. Sports is a chance to let loose and have a beer and be irrational and be stupid and just freak out when you're the only person at a bar because Joel Embiid just hit a fucking fadeaway three-pointer to win and go up 3-0 and to, to kill his demons that have been chasing him for years now. And this, this clown on Twitter was replying to Mark Zumoff, who was the longtime voice of the Philadelphia 76ers, retired this past year for K. Scott, who's phenomenal. Um, and this guy was just like, you're going to tell me that that was the best look they could have gotten at the end of the game was for Embiid to hit a fadeaway three, trying to be as if he's like Stephen A. Like he's got to, he's got to wake up tomorrow and he's got people who are going to care about what his opinion is. And what I realized is that over the last four years, I've shared a lot in common with that guy and that I didn't let myself enjoy the moment, enjoy the ride. Just who cares if they lose in the second round? They won that game. Enjoy it for that moment. We'll wake up tomorrow and we'll acknowledge all the flaws in that game. We'll acknowledge that James Harden hasn't looked the same and that Doc Rivers has his problem. But for that night, for that moment, be a fan. Go back to being the 12-year-old who watched the Phillies win the World Series in 2008. Go back to being the drunk college kid in 2018 who watched the Philadelphia Eagles win in 2016 when – Chris Jenkins, it's a buzzer beater to win a national championship. Allow yourself to access that moment, whatever that sports memory is for you. Because these moments are so few and far between. For some people, like if you're a Pats fan, New England fan, you've had a lot of those moments. And congrats, I'm stoked for you. But for that clown on Twitter, no one gives a fuck what you have to say. And he got dragged for it, and good. And his response was to be defensive and to say, oh, well, you're just trolling back. Blah, 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 all this stuff. Cool, dude, it's sports. It's sports. It's fun. Enjoy it. And I'm guilty of not doing that enough. I'm guilty of not be, of trying to be too analytical, to be too removed from that fandom. But you know what? You can't do this job. You can't be in this industry if you completely erase that from yourself. You become jaded. You become angry and negative. And you can't allow yourself to be happy in the moments that they happen. And so to be in that situation, completely caught off guard because I was pouring somebody a beer and then all of a sudden to learn Joel B just hit a fucking fadeaway three to win a game. It was this rush of just, oh my God, 
this is why we care. And so I'm going to make sure moving forward on this pod that I'm not that cynical asshole. I'm going to be rational. I am going to do that because that is a part of the job too. But when moments happen, be the fan. Enjoy it because it's so fucking awesome. So that's my monologue. And I'm excited um, for the Sixers. I'm excited for what happens moving forward. And if they never win, I pass the second round. Cool. Well, you know what? Last night mattered. Last night was a moment. And honestly, thank you to the Minnesota Timberwolves for, for reminding me of that. Because there's been a couple of moments over the last couple of weeks that have gotten me thinking. And last night was kind of the culmination of it. And one of them for sure was the Minnesota Timberwolves winning that play-in game last yeah. week and reminding us, you know what? It's okay to care about a game that's not the championship. Because for me, it's always been like, oh, championship or bust, right? No, fuck that. It's the journey. Because otherwise, just watch the championship. Just watch every 10 years. You're allowed to watch sports one time when your team happens to be in a championship. That's the only time you're allowed to watch. Otherwise, don't be a sports fan. Because it's about the journey. So that's my rant. I know you and Scotty are that way when it comes to Penn State football. And, and I love, I, I've said it for and I do love the passion. I always do love that. But I got to let myself feel that a little more. So there's my there's my getting off my my rant there for a little bit. But it's just... No, I mean, I- I love it because I think you're right. I think everyone also throughout the last couple of years, and I hope anyone else who feels like, I think the other piece is you got to let yourself feel it and you got to let others, right? Like, yes, mm-hmm. you may have a point that you want to make to your point. And you may say like, that, that is a great, you know, okay. Yeah. What, is that the best shot they could have gone? I, I, that's, a, that's okay. Like when you said that, it's like, maybe not, but guess what? That's set up for one of the coolest moments I've seen watching the Sixers, man. It's so, that was amazing. And so to your point, like don't rain on someone else's parade either. Just let people have great moments. And uh, you know, you don't, you don't always need to, to your point. Like if you don't care about that team and, and you're seeing fans go off, let them have fun, man. Let them enjoy it. I, and even if you're a rival, I have to say that, like, even if you, Oh, I hate that school, whatever. Listen, they're still people. They still need to have fun. They still need that escapism and, and everyone deserves I believe this true hardly. Everyone in the world deserves a championship in sports. One team that you follow in your lifetime should win a championship. I think everyone deserves that because I think that's the feeling that once you have it and you see it, you know, when you see other people have it, and you're like, man, good for you. You know, like, absolutely. Unless, unless you lose the game, but, you know I mean? but then it's still, you can relate to that person and know, yes. you know, damn, we were that close. And you know, that, you know, that feeling, you know what that's like. All right. Um, Let's talk about the Sixers, though, because Embiid put on one of the best halves of basketball after playing probably his worst half of basketball in the first half. Uh, Sixers were down, I think, as much as 17 at one point in this game, fought all the way back. And this is the type of game that Sixers, the Sixers fans know, like, we don't win these games. These are not games that we prototypically find a way to win. This is a game that in years past, you let slip through your fingers. And months past. Yeah, month, yeah, as recently as this year, right? And the fact that they did hit that last shot with Harden on the bench because he fouled out, you know, that's huge too, right? And Max even said after the game, he's like, obviously, you know, we love James, but thank God we had all those minutes without him because everybody knew exactly where they needed to be on that last shot. And Embiid was obviously the one who, who made it, and, and it was unbelievable. But the Sixers, I'm, I'm getting dangerously close to thinking, you know what? If they get Miami in round two, I still think it's going to be really hard. I think offensively Miami can score at will 
if their shooters are hot, whether it's Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero, they have guys who can just absolutely pour it in from three. Uh, and then they have experienced championship winner in Kyle Lowry, and they have Jimmy Butler, who's played in the finals too. So there are guys there who, who know how to win, who know how to be there. Uh, Bam is obviously going to be a tough challenge for Embiid. I, if he plays more than 56 games, he probably wins defensive player of the year. But I still think that even with Bam, I have a hard time seeing how they slow down Embiid and what Embiid can do to, to cut off everything on the inside where Jimmy Butler loves to get to the rack. Kyle Lowry likes to get to the rack. Um, and then they're able to work in the three point shooting of those other guys off of it. I think even though I would still probably lean Miami by a tiny little bit, I think it's absolutely plausible, but that the Sixers actually could find a way to the Eastern conference finals and seeing how Boston and Brooklyn are battling out every night. And then now, you know, Chris Middleton has a sprained MCL. He's probably going to be out for at least a month. It looks more and more feasible that who knows, maybe the Sixers do find their way to the NBA finals. I mean, I think that what we've seen from a especially recently, especially last night, it's just such a different view. Like, so we were talking a little bit before, but you had, you've had big guys before that were good shooters. You've had like Dirk Nowitzki's right. And, and you've had also just, big powerful centers which i actually think like Embiid for some reason just reminds me like patrick ewing in terms of like he just looks so much more big and dominant than like all the other players but he's so skillful and you saw it last night there have been videos and clips on instagram and on twitter of him doing just like even leading up to this game in this series leading up to the playoffs like step backs right i mean his skills of scoring have just gone through the roof in the last couple years he i as a fan watching, that's what I see at least. And one of the coolest things is seeing him hit a shot like that last night because it didn't see, it was like, that guy's not seven foot. That guy's like six, six. He's like Kobe's height. Like that was a, a play you'd expect a guard to make or maybe a small forward. Right. Yeah. And just the fact that a seven foot human being moved like that and just had that smoothness to him. And it's just so incredible. He's a freak in turn like his athletic ability and not only that his precision right it's not like he's playing defensive end and it's just bolt like you know you know just moving a mass and, and i know there's skill there i don't mean to deter from that and how like what's going on on but it's on not just the, it's not just like the shack just overpowering with dominance there's there's an no, art to it, what he does exactly the skill to drop in a, a, a swish from three with the buzzer beater i mean come on Come on. I will say no matter what, yeah, maybe Dirk hit some shots like that. There's been a few big guys. I don't remember, and I'm not the biggest basketball fan, but I don't remember a big man that started his career as being a dominant down low presence, all of a sudden just sniping threes. Uh, it's, it's absurd, dude. And I heard a stat today, and it, it, honestly, it doesn't even make sense when you hear it. But for his career, five seconds or less, from 25 plus feet and beat is 22 of 55. No way. Yes. <laughs> Which again, it, it sounds insane to say. Wow. And so many people say like, Oh, well, you know, you don't want to be shooting, you know, long jump shots or threes or whatever when, when the clock's running out. Um, but yeah, 22 of 55 and with five seconds or less from 25 plus feet. And that is, that is such an absurd number. That's like so good for I anyone. Would, I would expect like <laughs> maybe like 10 of 55 would have been really good. But I mean, I'm talking about 
that he hits on those shots, which is just, it's just absurd, man. And I, when he's playing this well, and he's such a problem offensively and defensively, I, I don't know how you attack them because, and that's the thing with Harden is like Harden is just dishing out assists left and right. You know, last night he had uh, what he had 10 assists again last night, 19 and 10 for Harden, right? Is Harden the guy who, who he right now he does not have the explosiveness to get by people that we've seen in the past. It's made Harden an MVP and one of the best players and one of the top 75 players of all time. But his passing, which was always the most underrated part of his game, has opened up so much in Maxi's explosiveness and especially how well he's played. You know, it changes everything defensively to the point where guys are like Tobias Harris is shooting 63% from three in this series because every Jesus. single sh- Every single shot is just a wide open three. Every single shot, it's just a set practice three. And when you're getting, and I was listening to JJ Reddick talk about this before, after game two, when, when you have guys doing that, they're NBA basketball players. They're going to hit their shots. And they also won this game without Thibel. And Thibel only played, you know, th- you know, 20, I think in total, it was like 29 minutes so far in this series um, because they knew he wasn't going to be around for the Toronto stuff. So they kind of were, getting reps with everybody else with knowing that he wasn't going to be there, but that's still your best wing defender and the defense that Tobias Harris has been playing. And he deserves a ton of credit. He's been playing. He's been absolutely balling. The, the pick he set on the final shot was unbelievable. The inbound pass was incredible. I mean, he also shut down, I think it was OG Ananobi. He had one-on-one and uh, it was one-on-one to one uh, to a hundred. The Sixers were up and Tobias Harris just plays lockdown defense and forces forces a turnover steals the ball, brings it back down the court. Now the Sixers didn't cash in on that, but the fact that you made the turnover to begin with, with a minute left in the game, I mean, Tobias has always been a pretty good defensive player, not, nothing crazy, no, nothing amazing, but the fact that he's doing that, everybody's stepping up. He's, he's averaging 20 and 10 in this series. Harden's averaging 20 and 10 in this series. Max is averaging like 27 and 10, and now we got Embiid averaging 30 and 10. Like that's a vicious starting five, man. And the thing with this team, and I said it after game uh, after the weekend on Friday, it's just there is something that feels different about it. It does feel like, you know, when they were practicing in that week before the playoffs started, they were saying we were ready to take each other's fucking heads off. There is a there is a nobody believes in this kind of energy here. And the big test will be Miami. But if they're able to steal one of two games against Miami, again, assuming the Sixers up 3-0 and Miami up 2-0 end up winning the, that game, uh, it feels like we're starting to get to this point where it's like the Sixers re- very realistically could uh, could get to the finals. Um, oh, yeah. And Tobias offensively, too, has just been such a spark throughout yeah. the whole year. He's just the, – the guy is um, – he's one of those players that when a team like this makes a run, they'll end up looking at him and Maxie and being like, look, these guys, it might not be a big three. It's almost a big four. Cause, and it's just like, yeah, but you weren't talking about him like that two years ago. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, well, he, his and, contract and point, says – yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and to your point, I think that's how he fits with Harden, with all the rest of these guys. Like, it, it, this team fits well together, and that's what matters when you're making a run. And Harden hasn't – got to remember, Harden hasn't been there that long mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. No, not at all. I mean, they've, they've probably played all, all together. They've probably only played 20-something games. You know, I don't know yeah. what the exact number is. Um, but, you know, the, we do this really dumb thing in the NBA, and there is some merit to it, right, because – we always care almost as much about the off season and the, and the, the, the trades and this free agency signing as much as we do the regular season, but we assign a, we judge players value solely based on their contract. And I get it. The, the Tobias Harris contract, he's being paid 
like he would be a big three guy. And when they went out and got him, that was the hope. And that was the expectation that he was going to be a met. He was going to be the third leg. Right. And when it was Embiid and Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, well now with Toby, he's just found his role with Harden and Maxi, and they don't really have a big three because Harden's not anywhere near what he was before, but they have an MVP candidate and they have three guys who are all producing at a very, very high level. And a lot of times when you have your big three, you'll have three all-stars and then a couple of role players that kind of go with them. And, and then you hope to add some depth. What they have is just balance throughout their whole starting lineup. And whether it's Danny Green or Thibel, you have Niang coming off the bench uh, and Shake Milton coming off the bench. You're, you're getting guys in there who it's a small lineup. It's not super deep, but they can do a lot of damage when they're there. And Tobias Harrison deserves all the credit because, you know, Right now, there are three guys on the team who were on the team when they lost to Toronto on that buzzer beater, the Kawhi buzzer beater, and it was Embiid, Tobias Harris, and then Korkmaz. Korkmaz isn't playing in these playoffs, so really you think it's Embiid and Tobias, and they, they, they've they been here. They've gone through this. They've gone through the highs. They've gone through the lows, and they're trying to take that high and take it even higher. And and as a Sixers fan, obviously, I love it. I still have questions about it, and, and there's still plenty of valid questions to go, go for it. But when you have a moment like that for one of your team's I mean, that's the biggest shot the six in Sixers history since the Iverson step over in the Laker in the Lakers finals yeah. in 2001 and 2000, 2001. That was the biggest shot the Sixers have hit in over 20 years. And it's just special. man. It's special. Um, some other housekeeping here on the NBA playoffs Two major inju- injuries. I said one there when we were talking about Milwaukee. Uh, Chris Middleton last night sprains his MCL. They also dropped game two to Chicago. Uh, shout out to the Bulls. I know I said that on, on Tuesday's pod, but I, they're just, it's weird to say like, oh, I'm super proud of them or whatever, but like I am, like I love that Chicago team. I love that they're out there battling. Uh, and you take Middleton out of this lineup. He's going to miss three to four weeks. Who knows, man? I mean, DeMar DeRozan dropping a 40 piece last night. Zach Levine can drop 40 any night. Alex Caruso is just awesome. Right. And and Vucevic is holding it down, rebounding, playing his part, kind of being like what Tobias Harris is for Chicago. Uh, I I love what I'm seeing from the Bulls. I don't know if they can pull it off, but you take Milton out of this series, uh, Middleton out of the series and it's a completely different team in, in the series shifts. And now it's one one going to Chicago. Chicago's got home court advantage now. Um, you know, Giannis is such a fucking animal that it may not matter. He might just yeah. carry this team all the way there. But I, I love the way the Chicago Bulls team plays. And ironically, too, before, two days before the game last night, uh, Ryan Leaf went and talked to the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> and it, he's a public speaker. And uh, we did, didn't get a chance to talk to him about that. But who knows? Maybe some nuggets that you'll hear in the pod that are on wore off on the on the Bulls there. But uh, that's a huge loss for, for Milwaukee. Middleton is their second best player. Uh, but they still have Drew Holiday, who's been okay so far. He was bad in game one, played a little bit better last night. Uh, but I think Chicago's got a chance to steal this. I think this this series could go seven games. I mean, I, especially with the injury. It, anytime an injury happens mid, like, um, well, uh, during a loss, but mid, uh, like, series, it always changes everything because you probably had a plan going in on how we were going to utilize this person against this specific group, right? It's not an injury where you're going to play a, a bunch of different teams. You're focused on one team right now. And I don't know what – I'll say this when they, when they've been using him recently, especially like, I don't know what's going to happen with um, like you said, is Giannis just going to have to put so much on his shoulders? The thing is though, is like, 
we know he can kind of do that. Like, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little different because it's like, okay, well, cool. We, we know he can do that. So let's see how far they're going to take this and what happens. And it was a close game even after the injury. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, which again, it sounds like Anchorman's voice, like DeMar DeRozan. And uh, DeMar DeRozan. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, like, I mean, he dropping 41 is just nuts. And it's so fun to see someone go off in the playoffs. But isn't it wild? Like, I feel like him dropping 40 wasn't even like it was a big deal, but like so much is going on in the sports world that like it, it I feel like normally that would be such a big deal. 40 the playoffs, it's it's a crazy game, you know. Well, it was it was third on the on the games, right? Because I people wanted to watch Boston and Brooklyn, which was a yes. great game, and Boston made a, a big big time point there, right? They they kind of planted their flag and said, like, you're not beating us in Boston. Um, yeah. And the defense Tatum played on KD was just absolutely absurd. And, and Boston's, you know, I, I Brooklyn's in real trouble. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if they're in sweep territory. I would expect them to win at least one of the games in Brooklyn, but this Boston team has a fuck you edge to them that, uh, it's a Boston I, I, edge. <laughs> yeah, man, seriously. And which is why, like it. how amazing would a Boston Philly Eastern conference finals be? It, people would be screaming at each other for no reason. I would love it. Yeah, and the thing is, is we haven't had, you know, Boston and Philly have played in the postseason a couple of times, but it hasn't been past the first round. So for them to get an opportunity, or I guess, yeah, yeah, first round, because when they lost in 2018, it was in the first round. Then when they lost in uh, 2020 in the bubble, it was in the first round. So they haven't had a moment, like a moment where, because you got to remember, too, there's never, the, the two teams that have played the most playoff series against each other in NBA history are the Celtics and the Sixers. And they haven't had a really meaningful game like that in, God, I mean, you might have to be going back to like the 80 Celtics, you know, and like Dr. J and Charles Barkley. Like, I'm sure there's been there's been a few, but nothing to the level of like them playing in the Eastern Conference finals would be. Uh, And there's already that Boston Philly mentality. Both teams have that fuck you edge. I don't know how the Sixers have an answer for Tatum and I don't know how Boston would have an answer for Embiid. So that would, that series would just be incredible. We're getting ahead of ourselves because we're still a full (laughs) round in between there, but just the idea of that as a basketball fan would be amazing though. It does make my anxiety and and blood pressure go through the roof. Uh, But for uh, going back to Milwaukee here, you know, Milwaukee without Chris Middleton is a completely different team. And as you were saying, DeMar DeRozan dropping 40 points, and it kind of being like the third story, fourth, if you consider the Jay Wright thing, uh, that's kind of what happens in the playoffs. And you have insane shots and big games. And, and and then obviously you have breaking news and stuff that kind of breaks in throughout all that. But DeMar DeRozan, so many people criticize that contract. And, you know, there's a moment people were like, oh, is DeMar DeRozan the MVP? And he was never realistically in the conversation. But three years, $85 million. I mean, Bleacher Report said it was the worst free agent signing of the, of the offseason last year. And he has helped carry that team when they've had injuries, when Lonzo went out, when Zach Levine got hurt, when all these guys were getting banged up, uh, Alex Caruso, you know, when all these guys were getting banged up, DeRozan was just carrying them. And at 35 years old, I don't think anybody expected that out of him. So I love to see this for DeMar. He got so much heat. And he also remembered, too, was so important to the city of Toronto when he was with the Raptors and he and Kyle Lowry, they were number one seed. And then LeBron, when he was with Cleveland, just ran through them every single year. He never got to to that, you know, have that championship moment that Kyle Lowry did because he was a part of the trade that got Kawhi Leonard. And so for him to have a moment on his own, I'm rooting for DeMar. Ever since I first saw him in the dunk contest back like 10 years ago, I've always liked DeMar DeRozan. And to see him really flourish this year has been spectacular. Uh, the other big injury, uh, Devin Booker, 
This was on Tuesday night. Uh, Devin Booker has a grade one hamstring strain. He's out for at least one to two weeks, which likely means he will not play again this series. Now, New Orleans stole game two and convincingly, and they didn't go away in game one either. I'm not going to say that the best team of basketball year is all of a sudden in trouble, but again, you lose the home court advantage. New Orleans, you know, they're a scary team to play at home, man. Like those fans are low key insane when they're in the playoffs. You know, I think about that. There was a Pelicans warrior series, the first run that the the Warriors really had with Steph. And I remember Steph hit a, hit a a three in the corner of buzzer beater with his eyes closed. And it was this unbelievable moment. And they stole a game from the Warriors there. And that was like young Anthony Davis when he was still in new Orleans, but the Pelicans, man, I mean, Brandon Ingram is playing incredible basketball. McCollum is a guaranteed 20 and, and probably five or whatever, but he's just a scoring machine. And then all of these young players, they got so much defense involved. I'm not worried yet, but, you know, the betting odds went from New Orleans being plus like 650 to win the series to now it's like plus 240 for them to win the series. So even Vegas is starting to be like, you know what, maybe this is a possibility, or at the very least they're trying to hedge their bets for people who are going to take the long <laughs> shot against the world. I think that this series is one to watch. This is one I didn't know what would happen. And it's going to be today as you're hearing this um, on Friday at um, 930 tonight, which I, I don't like for whatever reason, the fact that there are some, there are like games stacked, but like on a Friday, I feel like for some reason there shouldn't be sports. I'd rather have sports all, all Saturday and Sunday, but anyway, um, that's going to be the late game. And I'm really excited to watch that. Usually to be honest, I, I, like, even the Heat and Hawks, I definitely want to watch more Bucks and Bulls, but that series is definitely one to watch. Um, I can't wait for that game, uh, Suns Pelicans, and and like you said, going to New Orleans, man. I don't know how you would go to New Orleans. I personally can say I will never go to New Orleans in a sporting event for days, and like be okay, right? Like there's no way. Just the food, the amount to eat, the amount of drinking, obviously. Yeah, but if it was an LSU, but if it was an LSU football game, you would. No, I, I would go and I would have so much fun. I'm saying, but if you're a visiting team, how do you know? Oh, how do you? Oh, totally, yeah, how do you, yeah. Oh, my God. I could not stay focused because in between these serious games, right, they're not flying home. They're staying there for until the next game. So, like, that's the part of this whole deal. I don't know how Suns are going to do there. Um, you know, obviously, Chris Paul's a little older. Is he going to hit Bourbon Street? Is he not? Like, let's talk about what matters no way Chris in the series. Yeah, no, no way Chris Paul is. I mean, maybe, like, DeAndre Ayton or whatever. But that's the thing about this Suns team that I, I love. Like, and I do still love him. And Chris Paul, dude, like, he's not letting shit past him, man. Like, no. <laughs> he, between him and Monty Williams, I, I can assure you, they, especially now with, with Booker being out, they will be as locked in as all hell. And I think they'll win. Like I, said, I do think they're still going to win the, the series comfortably. We do this a lot in the playoffs. Like, you know, like Minnesota wins game one, right? And then Memphis came out in game two and just wiped them off the floor, right? So, we do this a lot where we overreact based off of, oh, they lost one of the first two. And then for all we know, it's going to end up being a five-game series and the better team's going to win four straight, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or three out of the next four, and it's not even going to you know be a thing. Um, but, yeah, man, I, I, I love – I still like New Orleans uh, or Phoenix, but just a ton of credit. I mean, you got to remember, too, this Pelicans team started 1-12 to start the season. One of the worst starts, and, and and they found their stuff all the way back. They were the nine seed. They had to play. They had to be a play-in team to even get into the playoffs. They won two games in the play-in tournament, and now they stole one from a, the only 60-win team we had in the NBA who is far and away been the best team all year. So uh, it goes back to that being a fan thing, right? 
Pelicans fans, live that shit up, man. Because this, especially with what they had to deal with with Anthony Davis, and then now everything with Zion, like those fans deserve stuff. And that win alone in Phoenix the other night, I think, says a lot. Before we take a break and get to Ryan Leaf, I want to bring up Jay Wright. Uh, Jay Wright surprised everybody last night on um, announcing his retirement. Uh, 21 years as the head coach of Villanova, two national championships, four final fours, uh, an unbelievable career, unbelievable run from one of the greatest college basketball coaches uh, in, in recent history, but I also think he'll go down as, as an all-time great. He's already a Hall of Famer and deservedly so. And credit to him, he wants to spend time with his family, with his wife. He's still going to be associated with the school. But I've shared this story on the pod, and I have my, uh, my Villanova basketball here that Jay Wright sent to me when I was 12 years old in, um, in elementary school. And we double-checked with, uh, with my mom as she was going through. I made her, when I was 12, put the letter he wrote me into our, the, the fire safe that my family had. Uh, and she didn't know if it was still there. Like, she didn't remember. She's like, well, you, you had it. I'm like, no, I definitely did not have it. And we checked it, and we do still have it. Um, Good. And, and just an unbelievable person, man. And I saw a lot of people making the jokes at Coach K's expense. Like, oh, does this mean he's going to do a, a year-long retirement tour now, right? Or – you know, oh man, Coach K could never, you know, all that stuff. Um, that's not what it's about for me. I mean, yeah, it's funny, but Jay Wright is just an extraordinary person. He's always done it the right way. Um, one of my favorite Jay Wright kind of history things in terms of when you look at his career, 2009, they make it to the, the Final Four. And that was Scotty Reynolds and Corey Fisher and Dante Cunningham and, and this great team. And um, after that, Jay Wright was like, well, you know, we just had our first big run. Uh, and they were a one seed back in the early 2002 with Kyle Lowry and some of those guys. Um, but I think they only went to the Elite Eight. But when they made their first Final Four, he changed how he recruited, right? He started going after high-level recruits. He started trying to go after guys who were going to be NBA players, right? And they struggled. They struggled for the next three or four years. And he had this moment of self-reflection where he was just like, I fucked that up. He's like, that's not how we do things here. He's like, how we do we we're going to go find Villanova guys, guys who are Villanova basketball players who not just fit our scheme, but fit our personality. And I don't care if they're even ranked in the top 500 prospects. We're going to do that. And we're going to win with those guys because we're going to do it the Villanova way. And I respect that so much because I don't think there's another coach in college basketball who who really runs their ship that way. Right. I, I think Tony Bennett does a little bit UVA. I think Mark Few did it for a long time, but, you know, even him, you know, he's got two guys. He had a lottery pick this year. He's got another one, Chet Holmgren, who announced today he's entering the draft, who might be number one overall pick in the draft. He's changed the guys that he's recruited, right, because he wants to win the title. And Jay Wright was able to win without having to do that. You know, when you think Ryan Archidiakono, who wasn't a top 300 guy, right, at all, and, and makes the most selfless pass to the fourth option to Chris Jenkins as the clock's running out, to hit a game winning to win the national championship. It's just, it, I can't say enough about him. And he's my favorite coach in the history, in my life and all sports, my favorite coach of all time. And I think he's the best coach in Philadelphia sports history. I, I really do. I don't know if there's anybody who compares. No one else had multiple championships. Andy Reid, as amazing as he was, never won a Super Bowl here. Doug Peterson won the Super Bowl, but was only here for four years. Uh, when you look back, I mean, you could maybe make the case for the Broad Street Bullies, but even still, 
like that was so long ago, you know, and to be honest, I forget the coach's name right now. And that kind of tells you a little bit of it too. I'm sure Philly fans who listen to this are going to try to rip me a new one for that. And I apologize, but I I just think he, he's such a uniquely special guy. He's from Bucks County, the same County I grew up in. Um, And and I just, I cheers to an amazing career. And, and um, we will, I know I'm going to miss him on the sidelines, uh, but he did everything with class. He did it the right way. And he has an unbelievable career to show for it. I mean, you said it all. I, I think that he's a guy who's been around college and has been so important. I just can't believe he, like Coach K did retire, right? And we're losing a figure of basketball. And this is another one. This is one of the top, these are two of the top five figures in basketball. And like potentially as a sport, I mean, I know there's NBA players, but especially on the coaching side mm-hmm. and like, I mean, you're talking about two legends and I very different circumstances. And I don't even want to get into that. I just want to say that I respect the way he has gone about this. And I really, I respect him because for Philly, listen, there's no like basketball. Um, there, there are schools downtown. I mean, there's Temple, there's all these other schools, but Villanova is a little bit in the burbs, right? And I can tell you what, like the city um, gets up for, for different schools and Villanova makes everyone in Philly very proud. There are a lot of people, most people that are Villanova fans never went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told the story of my buddy Garrett who has a Villanova tattoo from Vegas because he bet the house on them and they ended up winning. But like, right, he didn't, he went to Penn State with me. The point is, is that all these people who live in Philly, who grew up there, whatever, love Villanova because it's a small school that's out of the way and it's a little bit different identity of Philly, but it's still Philly. Yeah. And, and it's really rare to see such support for a school that really you don't have an association with and it's kind of out of the way. It's not like it's downtown. It's really cool to see. And, and for a long time, and I don't know when, when it switched, my guess is probably when Chris Jenkins hit the shot, it, it, it was kind of when it switched, but you know, if you went to temple, if you went to LaSalle, if you went to one of the other Philly five schools, the big five schools there in Philly, you, you didn't like Villanova, you know, you, they were your rival. Right. And then it just got to a point where they were so much better than Temple, LaSalle, Drexel, uh, UPenn, St. Joe's, like all those schools right in Philly that there was no hatred. It was just respect because everybody liked Jay Wright. And then they go off and they win the national championship the way that they did. And there's just an admiration for him uh, and for that school as a whole. And the only reason that that exists right now is because it's hard to say a bad thing about Jay Wright. It's, exactly. it's so hard, man. And I know for me, I, he obviously had a profound impact on me when I was a kid and, um, and I'll cherish that stuff for as long as I'm alive. Um, and I'll always be a Villanova fan because of it. And uh, just cheers to him. Uh, I hope he has a wonderful retirement and uh, I'd love to, at some point, you know, really dive into some of the stuff. We just got a lot going on today. So just wanted to throw that footnote in there. Uh, Congrats to coach Wright. Uh, May you enjoy retirement and may we also enjoy for the next five years, the amount of uh, rumors we're going to hear about. Oh, is Jay Wright maybe jumping to the NBA? Maybe the Sixers new head coach, you know, Jay Wright, he's retiring. Oh my God. I don't get me excited. I mean, that's what it's going to be, dude. Like, I know we're going to hear it forever. Also, there's never been a six year old who looks as, good as fucking jay wright i thought he was like mid 50s i had no idea i cannot believe no idea 60 years old it's crazy i don't believe it yeah like you know players are playing into their 40s like brady dude jay wright could coach until he's 90 i mean joe pa was 82 
Uh, you know, it's a little different situation, but I'm just saying like, dude, this guy, he easily could have coached until he was 80 and probably looked like, oh, that guy should maybe think about retiring. It looks like he's in the sixties. Like, yeah, yeah, he looks, I mean, he was, he was 39 when he took over at Villanova and you see the videos and stuff when he first came over from Hofstra. And then you look at pictures of him now and you're like, yeah, a few more gray hairs, but more or less, that's the same dude. (laughs) I mean, just amazing. And and I also think too, just the, the, the way his former players talk about him, you know, um, and what he's meant to them and, and that's cool. He, he makes good, he makes good kids into great men. And, uh, yeah, and, we'll and leave that's about that. the highest compliment you can pay a coach. Absolutely. All right. Up next, Ryan leaf, uh, sat down with him for about 40 minutes. Enjoy the pod. Uh, give us your feedback, share it. If you guys liked it, uh, I know leafy and I had a great time uh, and just the first of many interviews to come, but uh, enjoy it. Ryan leaf on the read option up next. Uh, we are joined now by the biggest guest we've ever had on the read option uh, by far. So crack cracking off this new wave, we just had our hundredth episode. And so we have to make sure we get, you know, stuff for the people. And we're joined by one of the best college quarterbacks of all time. A good buddy of mine as well. Mr. Ryan leaf leafy. What's going on, buddy. Uh, good to be here, man. It's good to see you in your element. Uh, yeah. Just uh, excited for you and, and glad to be a part of it, man. Yeah, no, excited. Uh, Ryan Leaf, you can catch him literally everywhere, dude. You, you're at you, ESPN, Sky Sports, Westwood, obviously SiriusXM, um, and your podcast, Bust, which I just listened to for the second time this week, is on anywhere you can get your podcast. Just an absolutely amazing story. Um, you're so candid. You're so open about everything that's happened in your life. And and it's, I love, you know, all the guest speaking stuff you do now. It's so amazing. And I was curious because you've, you've told your story in a lot of different facets, right? There's been countless articles written about it. There's an E60 about it. What was the driving force and, and kind of the impetus behind wanting to change, do it in a different platform? What, what was so attractive about doing a podcast version of this that is really you narrating your whole story? Well, I feel like, well, thank you. First off, it was a, a passion project. I had initially taken this uh, idea uh, to some of the networks and some other outlets in terms of content. And we were trying to sell it as um, a docu-series called Bus. And it would have been me um, visiting different individuals in different genres of sports who had a ton of expectation on them that didn't necessarily meet those expectations. And, um, and I'd be the one interviewing them because I knew exactly what it was like to yeah. be cast aside and, and that word being used. So I thought it would work really well. And I thought we had it sold a couple different times. Um, just didn't quite get it done. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I ran into a, a producer friend of mine and him and I kind of just started spitballing some ideas around, well, let's give somebody an idea of what this would look like and I'll be the guinea pig. I'll just, I'll do it. It's, it's my story in my words. Most of those other things that you talked about in terms of the, you know, the E60 and uh, articles and, you know, little document, things like that. I, I have no say in any of that, right? The mm-hmm. only thing I have say in is the questions they ask me, how I answer them yeah. and who knows how they edit them. I mean, I remember doing the E60 and the producers wouldn't even let me see it the night before. Right. Really? So that didn't make, that didn't make me feel good about it. And then they were asking me to go on uh, ESPN and do their car wash and promote it all day. And I'm like, I, I don't know what this is going to look yeah. like, you know? So um, I think it was important for me because 
it's a story that's been told by a lot of people and not me. I've never really commented on it. And some of the things that no one has any idea about, and I thought it was going to be important for individuals who have family members who struggle, people who are um, incredible athletes growing up and are, are struggling with the competition aspect of things. I mean, I think a lot of people also assume that my story is a, you know, uh, a cautionary tale. Don't, don't do what I do, but you had to have done a, a, a bunch of good stuff to get to that place. And I yeah. think people forget that uh, on how you go about it. So how you evolve once you get there. And uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, a story that stands the test of time and I think it will help people. And I think like anything, you can listen to it tomorrow or five years from now, or when you need it, it's, it's 10 episodes. It's not been asked to maybe add to more episodes and just kind of start being a, a podcast. And I just, I don't know if that's, that's maybe I find a different format to do that in, but yeah. this, this in itself all by itself at 10 episodes stands alone. And I, and I, and I stick by that. And it's, it's so great in that aspect too, you were saying, being able to control the narrative, right? It's a lot of things we've seen with the Players' Tribune have done a lot of the similar things, right? Take, give the athletes and the people who experience this the platform to tell their own story. And it's something that I, I think one of the few great things we have about social media nowadays, right? Because it can always be so hit or miss, but giving athletes uh, and people who've experienced great things and have gone through struggles as well, then an opportunity to, to express themselves and tell their story. Um, I, I do think to, to that, to that end, the person has to be like transparent and vulnerable and, and accountable. Like if yeah. you just, if you take that platform and just use it to blame and to play the victim and things like that, I, I don't think that benefits anybody. Um, there has to be a realness to it. And I think that was what it was set forth. Um, uh, my producer friend who any of you entourage fans out there, uh, remember the character E, uh, his name's Kevin Connolly. And I, there had to be a trust there, right? My wife yeah. also produced it and she knows my story like, like nobody else's. So when I was in there talking, you know, she could, she could look at me and go, Hey, you know, that's, you're, you're embellishing that a little bit, uh, to make yourself sound better. And those are things that I had done in the past. So they were able to call me on my shit uh, it's a big reason why we want to go on and do season two, season three, and 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 attack some other um, genres of sport. And for me to be in the room there and and like that, know that they can feel comfortable, but I can also know when they're when they're feeding me a line because yeah. I know exactly what it felt like when yeah. you're walking down the street and somebody yells out something, or on all the social media platforms, people just love to go at you and use the word bust and things like that. No matter what you say or how you say it it affects you unless you learn how to destigmatize it and, and take all power away. And this was a big part of that. Well, and I think that's what makes it so great it is it, you can tell it's authentic, you know, and there's even moments in there when, when you're telling a story and you, you kind of call yourself like an asshole, you're like, God, I was an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, cause, and, and that's the authenticity that makes this kind of thing work. Um, and that was actually kind of where I wanted to go here is th there was a line you said in the second episode. And I think, I remember you had recorded it that day or you were, you were telling me and Horowitz about it whenever we were doing a show that night. And you might've used the same line, but you said, I'm an egomaniac. I was an egomaniac with a self-esteem problem. And that's such a great little clip of self-awareness. And that's a big thing for me just as a person in general is that concept of self-awareness. And I'm curious as to how, how do you think that manifested in your day-to-day -day life? Like, do you feel the two fed into each other? Was it a projection or did it feel more like Jekyll and Hyde where 
you know, when you, when you needed offensive linemen to walk you down the, you know, campus, that that was isolating in a lot of ways. And then on the football field, you could then be this competitive monster that could kind of let all that aggression out. Yeah, it was, it was exactly that, right. It, it, like anything you, you want to be recognized for uh, the star that you are, but you don't actually feel that way at home when you look in the mirror, like you, you see the person, everybody else sees the player uh, and they don't, they don't coexist. Like, and I couldn't, I couldn't make it work where I could see how the same person could behave the same way. Like, could I behave like the um, kind, considerate uh, individual at home with, with family and friends and stuff like that? Or was it, on the field, I had to be a monster, right? I had to compete about everything. It worked. It worked for, it got me to the highest level possible of what I wanted to do in a sport, but it just shows you once you get there, if you're not able to evolve and you don't have to be a good person. I mean, we've seen plenty of people who are not great people be really great football players. It's a matter of how you deal with it, right? And how you deal with failure, how you get past it, how you take in what other people are saying. And because I was an egomaniac with a self-esteem problem, when people were extremely critical and were shaming, like I got so defensive and all my attention was placed in other places and not where it was supposed to be directed to. Yeah. It's so fascinating to me. And and that's the side of athletes that I don't think, I think we understand it a little bit better now, again, through things like, like Kevin Love is, is a go-to example for me. You know, he, I think in the sports world in particular, really shifted the conversation about mental health. And I think culturally we've adjusted and we've grown to seeing like he had an anxiety, he had a panic attack on an NBA court, you know, like trying to process that where you have thousands of fans screaming at you, yelling at you and having had panic attacks myself, that's a horrifying feeling. And when you are at that highest level and you think about the last dance, right? Michael Jordan's sitting alone in a hotel room, smoking a cigar. It can be, yeah, I achieved all this greatness, but I also feel as alone as I've ever felt because there's not a lot of people who can relate to that. Well, I think that, that you also, even though there may be truth to that, I think we also, um, you know, buy into it too. Like we are unique. Like, yeah, I guess Michael Jordan can make the, you know, say that I'm the greatest basketball player ever, but yeah. You know, there's a there's a way for you to compartmentalize that and still be engaging. Um, otherwise, even though I mean, you are in, you know you are implicit in in making that outcome a reality that you're sitting alone in a hotel room. You you've played into that, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's important for you to have a a grounding method, right? A way for you to ground yourself to make sure, like, okay, I'm not more important than anybody else. I'm a great basketball player or I'm a great football player. That doesn't make me more important or less important than anybody else. There may be some unique qualifiers to that because I can't go too many places without being recognized or, ha- or hounded for autographs and things like that, or pictures that, that those are unique qualifiers, but yeah. able to look in the mirror and go, okay, I'm a flawed human being just like everybody else trying to get better uh, in what I do. That's, that's a, a, an incredibly accepting and surrendering moment. And a lot of us don't ever get there until, until we're almost forced to. Yeah. So you kind of hit that, that rock bottom. Do you, and I'm not a big fan of hypotheticals in and a wide for a bunch of reasons. Right. But I I'm curious for your instance, 
do you feel like your career and, and the path that you went down was an inevitability that because of kind of your upbringing and your experience at Washington State, that you were kind of not destined, but you were always kind of go, go, kind of going down that track that, you know, it was always going to end up that way. And if maybe the, the idea of how what we know about mental health now and the support and resources we have now for people you had back then, things might have been different. I, I don't. Um, I also know that if I ended up in another place, maybe it's a different story. Maybe I'm more successful because the players around me are better and uh, the character defects aren't found out until later on in my career or at the end of my career. Um, or I, I, I never address them at all. And I'm a 45 year old asshole uh, who played quarterback pretty well in the NFL. Right. So yeah, uh, I think it's, it's important to recognize that, um, it, you know, it didn't sidetrack me in high school, didn't sidetrack me in college, you know, didn't sidetrack me early on in the NFL. It just, you know, once it happens at the highest level like that, there's no leeway, right? There's no um, gathering yourself, really. It's, it's, it's the epitome of the, the best of the best. And so most people don't get more than one shot. I got a couple shots. Like most people don't. You get cut, you're done. I mean, you, you don't get another chance at it. And so um, you better make the most of it or you'll be gone because there's so many, there's thousands of guys that are willing to fill your spot, period. And so I, I, I'm not, I don't go into hypotheticals either because I, I, I'm grateful for what happened. Um, it was frustrating and it was disappointing and it was painful uh, along the way. Yeah. But as is life for a lot of people, it, as it is for everybody, you know, it's just not, you don't walk through unscathed and that that's just because a lot of people know my story because it was so public doesn't mean it's any different or it's any worse than anybody else's um just because people knew about it in fact it was probably something that ultimately saved my life because i was forced to address it you know i just couldn't disappear into the shadows like people who are going through the same type of things i was going through yeah no and and that makes a lot of sense i mean the it's interesting to think that being in the public image though might have had greater peaks and valleys right ultimately was a thing that like you said saved your life and is a big reason why you've been able to to kind of turn things around and that's one of the things i admire about you so much and haven't gotten to know you for i mean got about three years or so we've been we work together um i know this ryan right yeah. i know this self-aware you know confident just like really nice guy ryan who's so easy to talk to who's so much fun to be around and i'm i'm fascinated that if looking back right at the version of yourself in college and even in high school, as you're getting ready to go to Washington state, that ultra competitor, do you see a version of yourself now that existed, even a, a small essence almost of yourself that was in that person at the time. And you just kind of had to go through a lot of shit to get there. Oh yeah. I mean, there are plenty of people who've had interactions with me uh, who've, who've come out over the years and said, uh, we met once at this, that, and the other, and you were so kind and you took time out to sign an autograph for my, my, my kid. And, I mean, there's you a lot of times when I met people, it was a one time uh, situation, right? It was a first yeah. impression and you don't have an opportunity to make another first impression. If it's a bad one, that's that's it. That's how it is. One of the biggest things that existed out there was me yelling at a reporter. Right. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, like a caricature of me is like, oh, that Ryan Leaf guy, you, the guy that yells at reporters. Mm -hmm. And I like, well, I yelled at one reporter, but that's that that's what with you. That's how it works we're watching the the winning time thing right now and people associating Jerry West with 
throwing things everywhere. He's pissed about it. You know, yeah. if he threw if he threw one thing one time ever in the office, it can be dramatized as him having just a, a crazy anger problem. And so you you just you gotta you gotta understand that's how it how it goes. And um, but when you care so much about what other people think of you, uh, it's tough. And back in the day when I was so good at what I did, it didn't matter if the people thought about me in a negative or positive way, as long as they were thinking of me. That's all mm. I cared about. It didn't matter what it looked like. Um, so I didn't have to worry about how I behaved. I just had to go out and compete and win. And if that's the case, I'd have 50% of the people in love with me and you know, 50% of the people that hated me. And that, I was okay with that. I never, I never had a problem with it because I could go compete and win. And when that went away, when I couldn't compete or I wasn't at the top of it anymore, like you know, the, the 50% that were on the on the, the great player side of things, like they fell off quick. And yeah. then the, the, maybe the, the, the minority in the room, um, the minority voice in the room got louder and louder and louder. Well, and you had a platform to, to make people talk about you too, right? Like you said, like if, if you wanted people to talk about you, I'm going to go throw for 400 yards against Cal and people are going to talk about, it, you know? And so for better, or for worse, it, you had the ability to fulfill that when you wanted to, um, Talking about your football for a second, because I went through a rabbit hole on YouTube this morning watching your old highlights of Washington State. And God damn, were you fucking good, dude? Like, like I because you were, you know, a lot of ways like Josh Allen, like you were this massive, great athlete from, you know, Northwest. Right. And you were run guys over. You could throw the ball a mile. I didn't learn. Remember until I listened to it today that Miami wanted you to come down, play linebacker, tight end. You know, and that story of you in the back seat with Warren Sapp and The Rock was, I mean, that's that's just amazing, dude. Yeah, and, but no one no one knew that they and, were Warren Sapp or The Rock at the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. They were I'm assuming they were probably both freshmen, right? Or around that time. Yeah, they well, were, I, I think they were around I think The Rock was around junior and Warren was a sophomore, something. But anyway, yeah. Um yeah, I was, you know, I I think for the longest time I forgot how how <laughs> good a football player I was simply because I was told how bad of a football player I was and, yeah. and continue to be told that, you know, yeah. it, it just doesn't register like it used to. I just, I started to believe it. Um, those were great times. Uh, I'm, I'm flying up to Pullman today. I'm calling the spring game for PAC 12 networks um, this weekend. I'm bringing my family with me, my son and my wife. And, and so, you know, it's wonderful to go back there and, and remember those days. Um, we had a really good team. I had a really good coach. Um, I think I don't think enough of that is mentioned when people talk about how how great I was. I had I had a special group of people around me that that made me um, you know really good, and we got to experience some really neat things. You know, got yeah. to be a Heisman Trophy finalist alongside three Hall of Famers. My coach got to be recognized as one of the best coaches in the country with awards on that end of thing. Um, Washington State was talked about nationally we got to play for a national championship essentially it was just um you know the greatest all the things i'd worked towards yeah. regardless of how anybody felt i behaved or did i mean it, it got me to the precipice of greatness right and that's what you would try to achieve people may look at it and shake their head and go i knew it i knew it he would, he would. well you know none of you got anywhere else <laughs> behaving any other way so I, I did what I had to do. There wasn't a trailblazer. The last guy that was drafted in the first round out of Montana was like in 1953. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I didn't know how to do it. You know, I, I mentioned in the podcast, it was like, I was making an omelet you break fucking eggs and you go, you know, you just, and you try to solve it as much of it as you can. Yeah. Um, 
was it difficult or, or maybe talk through the process of, of kind of reconciling that, you know, obviously you speak so fondly of your days playing and that comes through in the podcast, right? Like you hear your voice light up, the tone of your voice lights up and talking about, you know, working out all summer and then going playing golf in Idaho until, you know, it gets dark. Like, and I know you, I know you're a golf guy, so you're probably living in heaven during those days, right? What is it difficult knowing the path that football led you down and, and again you're happy and, and happy that you went through it because of where you are now but was there moments where it was hard to kind of be like I love football I love what it gave me but it also put me through hell in a lot of ways too well I think during a lot of times during like the hell that you're talking about I saw it as incredibly toxic like I would not watch NFL football mm. um I can't remember if I really watched college football too. I was, but I also was more invested in, in not feeling anything. And that was, you know, you, you put a lot of time and effort into drug seeking uh, and trying to medicate your mental illness. Like it's, it's all encompassing, you know, it, you become addicted to the, you know, the OCD of it, try trying to figure it out. So if sports were brought up, if football was brought up, I think it would trigger uh, a moment for me, like, especially if I didn't have, any self-medicating ways at the time to go out and seek it, right? That's what that did. It triggered that, that moment. So it was always a balancing act once I got out of prison on um, whether or not I wanted to delve back into the, the sporting world, you know? Um, I, went to co- I went to college uh, trying to get a communications broadcasting degree. I liked uh, talking about it. It reminded me growing up with my dad sitting at the counter talking about every season of sport. And I felt like I could do it well. And so I just needed, I just needed some people to help support and, and take a chance on me. And luckily, um, Steve Cohen really at, at, uh, at Sirius XM was the first real guy to, to flat out say, Hey, you know, you've forgotten more football than most people will ever know. Yeah. And that was so confident building for me because I've, you know, he wants me to go on NFL radio. Aren't people going to say, why would you have that bust on there? And then my mindset would be like that instead of what I know and how I can talk about it. So yeah, for a while it was toxic. Um, but I also know it gave me everything, just absolutely gave me everything. The friendships, uh, the, the maturing, the leadership qualities, um, and the experience uh, to be good at what I do now. And, uh, and it's helped me in other aspects of life, being a, a partner and a, and a, and a father, better brother, better son, all those things. And, and it's such a fascinating dichotomy, but ultimately the end result is, you know, where you're at now, which is, which is beautiful. Um, last thing I'll, I'll say here is just, I love how much you love your son. Like seeing, you know, every time we work together, there's a new story, there's a new party, there's new this or that that you're coming in. And again, when you hear your story, and I'm lucky enough to know you a little bit behind the scenes and, and you know, call you a friend, it's so cool to me to see the way you light up. First thing you said on the Zoom was, oh, I'm chasing, chasing around the kid, you know, and it's it's just a really beautiful thing, man. And, and it's so awesome to be able to be on the other side, getting a chance to see that and and knowing everything you've gone through. And, and I think it, if people see that and how you post on social media about them and then at the same time, go and listen to your podcast, I, it, it's hard for anybody not to be rooting for you. And, and I know, you know, your buddy, Rich Eisen, you know, and what he's done for you too, and being able to put you up is, it's really amazing, man. It's, it's super, it's super great. Um, I do have, I do want to get into some football stuff and some PAC 12 stuff. Cause you are as much of like a PAC 12, you know, uh, icon, you know, for lack of a word, you, you pump up the league as much as anybody. Uh, and I think one of the biggest things that happened in, in 
honestly, all of sports because of I think the weight the Pac-12 can carry, but didn't get talked about a lot last year outside of our circle because we're obviously in the college world, was George Klyovkov, George Klyovkov taking over for, for Larry Scott. Um, we're coming up on a year already, which is crazy since he's taken over. How, how would you grade, you know, use whatever measuring system you want to use, uh, George Klyovkov's first year running the Pac-12? I think he's done an exceptional job. Um, you know, the, the, the nuance behind expansion is a bit questionable simply because he was one of the conferences that voted not for the expansion, but there were reasons behind it. But I just don't think anybody's willing to hear those reasons. Uh, people don't understand how important the Rose Bowl is to the Pac-12 conference. It is, the, I believe, the lone um, bowl game left that could stand on its own. Every other bowl game could go away and people would find different ways. Uh, the granddaddy of them all can't. And there were some licensing and TV rights issues that weren't necessarily readily available for the public. So the reaction immediately was swift. And it was like, you know, don't talk that nonsense and then go out and vote behind the back uh, I don't, I don't know if he expected it to get leaked. I mean, you, you have to, everything is going to get leaked these days, any behind closed doors sessions. So that may be the only thing that I would say um, it, it was a bit troubling, you know, the way he's gone about his business, uh, how he's um, interacted with the universities, going to campuses, kind of grassroots boots on the ground, um, acknowledging that the, the San Francisco uh, property where the Pac-12 Networks is situated at is just uh, is just a money pit and they have to move somewhere else and make it more affordable and they can pump more money into the programs, which then uh, the results are different, right? Mm -hmm. Bottom line, expansion needs to happen. It has to for the Pac-12 Conference because it's too good from top to bottom. And to get through a season, especially a nine-game season, unscathed, and then you have these teams that are willing to go schedule the likes of Utah schedules Florida this year, Oregon schedules Georgia. Mm -hmm. I mean, those games are huge. If they're able to win them, I mean, Oregon did it a year ago and yeah, they went out with Ohio, Ohio State. State. It was huge. But then they go and lose to Stanford, who only won three games last year, a couple of weeks later. Like that, the conference is so difficult up and down to win nine games, especially if you schedule somebody who can beat you in the non conference. So, uh, expansion was the biggest thing. I think he'll address it. Unfortunately, it looks like it's going to play out this contract, which isn't, isn't great for the PAC 12 conference. Uh, you have to have a team that can step up, but the Rose bowl stays intact. PAC 12 will represent in the Rose bowl. And, and that's always the biggest bowl game there is. So like his mindset, like how he's interacting with coaches, he's got walking onto campus and taking meetings with student athletes, hearing what they said. It's just something that just something that Larry Scott did. And he was, you know, he was a guy at the very top that, was trying to make things uh, financially um, better. And the fact that the Pac-12 still owns their own network is meaningful, especially when these, these TV rights deals come up, because now it's not owned by ESPN or it's not owned by somebody else, but the Pac-12 network can now go out and really get into, have people get into bidding wars. They can go to streaming services. They can do all these things. And that was the intent. So at the end of all of this, People may look back on the Larry Scott tenure after this next TV rights deal is done and think, you know, well done, Larry, way of holding on to an asset that doesn't uh, that is clearly appreciated in value like no other. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I think a lot of people 
because of the headquarters being in San Francisco. There's a lot of hate that gets thrown to Larry Scott, but the idea that he might age better over time, um, especially on the national perspective, I think he gets a lot of hate. And, and I think that's a big problem for the Pac-12 as a whole. I've always been of the mindset that, you know, I think the SEC, the Big Ten, right, I think they do, they're a cut above, but I don't see it, this massive drop-off between the ACC, the Big 12, or the Pac-12. I think there's fantastic talent in all three of those conferences, and I think they're all in that same bubble. But I do think nationally, for whatever reason, and it might just be there hasn't really been a, a dominant team really since the Chip Kelly Oregon, you know, squads, I, I think nationally it gets put as fifth, and I, I don't always think that's fair. I don't think it's fair either. I think from top to bottom, it's the most competitive conference in the country. So I mean, I if you're, you're looking at the entirety of it. Now, do we have an elite team that can go 13 and 0 every year in a championship and is in the conversation with the college football playoff? No, it just hasn't happened. We've had some teams that have, have risen to the top. Uh, we need the likes of USC to get back on that platform. Uh, and they went out and tried to hire, they went out and hired a guy that they feel will make a difference. We'll see. Uh, how that ultimately plays out and how he can recruit to, to Southern California where, um, you know, people are just not in, as invested in college football as they are in the South, right? It just is a different, different scenario. So um, I, I don't like the rankings of clearly the SEC is, is, is at the top just by how many NFL players get drafted out of that conference every single year. But yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare place them at the fifth level. I, I place them more towards the top in terms of top to bottom, uh, success and skills. It's just a matter that they beat each other up a lot and yeah. no one's beating Alabama or Clemson or whatever until this, this last year, really. Well, and there's, there's no other conference as the parody, right? I mean, no. if you like a conference that has Alabama and Vanderbilt top to bottom, then sure. But if you like a conference where it's for entertainment value, I think, and there's a reason people love PAC 12 after dark, right? There's a I mean, reason you why no, you really don't too. have, yeah, you really have no idea who's going to win each and every yeah. week, which I like. I like that for an entertainment value. I, I don't think there's anything better. You know, yeah, you'll get a couple games in the SEC where Bama, Georgia or Bama, Florida, you know, and you'll get really entertaining games. But even with them, the, the gap between the haves and the have nots in the SEC, I think hurts the regular season product a lot. And then once we get around to college football playoff time, it's like, oh, yeah, the SEC is the best conference, blah, blah, blah. And then we always forget. Oh, yeah. But actually, there's. 12, 13 games that get played before you even get to that point to begin with. So maybe, you know, let's try to enjoy that. And Oregon, I think that win last year over Ohio State was massive for the Pac-12, right? It, it felt like the first big oh, conference win yeah. that the Pac-12's had in a long time. And there's plenty of those this year, too. There's plenty of those this year. I talked to you about the Utah-Florida game, mm -hmm. uh, Oregon-Georgia, Washington State-Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are some early games. And then, then USC and Notre Dame because of Lincoln Riley and uh, the new coach, the new coaching staff at, 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 at Notre Dame too. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of opportunities. The bo bottom line is over the years, or at least the last five years, we weren't winning those non-conference games. So there was nothing to really stand on last year with that victory. There was a real, you know, Oregon didn't help their cause by losing to Stanford a couple of weeks later, because then everybody could go, Wow. Uh, but then they lost to Stanford, right? I guess that, yeah. that was a fluke, right? But they yep. also did that without Kayvon Thibodeau, without, you know, two, I think two of their starting linebackers. Uh, it's well, they lost their quarterback. Kayvon actually played in that game, but they – oh, the Ohio State win? The yeah, they did, it without, they did it without Floyd, and they did it without Thibodeau on the defensive side of the football. So, yeah, it was uh, – they just – that defensive coordinator got out-schemed by, by uh, Moorhead, and it was, it was something to see. I mean, if you watch them, watch, watch them run weak side with a pulling guard – 
they saw something on film and mm-hmm. Ohio state never just never corrected it. Yeah. And it changed Ohio state season too. Uh, I want to do a little bit of draft stuff before we get you out of here. Um, we were having a debate last week on the pod, the guys who, who usually do the pod with me um, about quarterbacks in the NFL right now who haven't signed their long-term extension. And the other two guys took Herbert and I took Joe Burrow and the rationale for it. And, and they were, they were taking upside, right? They were taking the talent, and, and I love Justin Herbert. I had him second on my list. Well, I don't think either one of them are able to sign a long-term contract yet because no, they haven't played three yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, it's just like if you were to rank the quarterbacks that are kind of due for that, you know, who who would you be most excited about? You know, who would you give that bag over as quickly as possible? You know, yeah, they still have another, honestly, two years because of the fifth-year um, option. But with uh, I, the reason I picked Burrow was because I think it's just as important when you're talking about a franchise quarterback to talk about the person and deciding on the person as much as the player. And I think you're, you're uniquely qualified about this because I think it pertains a lot to the draft. And as much as I love Justin Herbert, who I also think is a great person, there's the leadership, there's the charisma, there's the fact that Joe Burrow just took them to a Super Bowl, right? That I had him just slightly ahead of Justin Herbert, whereas the other viewpoint is the talent. So applying that same logic to the draft, there are guys in this year's draft who are incredibly talented, but would you lean like how much what, what is that 50 50 60 40 towards I'm drafting this person versus I'm drafting this talent? Well, I mean, talent has to override everything, you know, just it just does. And if there are red flags around behavior and personality, then that has to be deducted. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I you got to love the, the the personality traits of all three of the top guys, I think, and Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett and Matt Corral. I mean, Matt Corral for all the things he's gone through, the, the uh, adversity he's overcome finding Lane Kiffin at the time that he did. Um, he, he can be something special for, for, for a franchise. Um, and then you got, you got guys like Sam Howell and Desmond Ritter who are guys who played forever and played a ton. And uh, I think there really are five guys and you, you throw in Carson strong there who has a ton of starts as well. Big, strong kid. There's six guys that are very capable of leading organizations, whether they, whether teams move up too high and use unrealistic expectations on these young men is another thing, right? If Mm -hmm. Detroit says we're going to take Malik at two, you know, I don't necessarily think he's the number two overall pick in this year's draft, but he's going to have the expectations of that and he's going to Detroit. So it's, it's a lot about where you go uh, and then how you deal with failure. Cause guess what, boys, you're going to deal with a mountain of failure. A lot of people don't really fully understand that usually when teams are drafted that high, uh, there's some failure to deal with and it's how you deal with it, whether in a positive or healthy way. And, uh, you know, just look at, just look at what the chargers and the Bengals did. They, they drafted the best players mm-hmm. uh, at the quarterback position. And I would argue they are neck and neck with one another. I, I would, I would say that Justin Herbert's a more talented uh, quarterback. I, I think he's the most talented quarterback in the NFL, to be honest with you. Um, but Joe Burrow just has there's just an it factor. You get the Bengals to the Super Bowl in your second season after missing half the season. There's there's something about you, right? He changes the environment. I believe Justin does that too. They just need to be better at the coaching position yeah. and on the defensive side of the football, right? Yeah. Where Cincinnati did. They played better. They were better coached. Um, if Staley doesn't make some of the mistakes he made last year in his coaching decisions, they're in the playoffs, right? And yeah, if Cincinnati could have gone, LA easily could have gone um, yeah. from their side of things. No, and, and I'm, for the record, I am with you. Like I have them both right here, and oh, that's yeah. kind of where that like. I wouldn't right be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if both of them, like Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes, are given that bag after their third year when they're when they're eligible to to sign an extension. 
Yeah. And both will be absolutely uh, deserving. Um, I, I, the other thing you said too is, and I agree with this fully is it's as much about where you go as, as who you are. Right. You know, like that plays such a a massive role in it. So I knew you, I know you're, you were high on Ole Miss last year. I know you love Corral. So where out of those top three, you know, is there a, a dream pairing between player and, and team that you could see working out that you think would be like, that would be scary if you got those things kind of like Mahomes in 2017 because Mahomes had all the talent in the world but if he goes to probably 30 other teams it's not as likely that he ends up being the face of the league like he is now no oh, it's a huge part of it right and I, I you know I've been speaking with Matt Corral uh, a bunch about this in that hey don't worry about where you go or when you go just you know look at and, and almost look at the opportunity of being drafted later in the first round would be so beneficial right yeah um you know, I, I, I like his chances at, at a place like Pittsburgh. If, if he could fall there, I, that would be a neat event uh, opportunity, especially with Matt Canada's offense. I think that RPO game, which he's the best in this year's draft class at doing, definitely would make that incredibly difficult to defend uh, with the players that they have. Najee Harris being able to run the football and then utilizing that behind it with the run pass option, those types of things. Um, you know, Kenny Pickett for him, it's going to be entirely where he lands because I don't think he fits in every situation. It's going to have to be the right place. Fortunately, Carolina seems to be a a possible landing spot and you're going to be in a position where you have a quarterback that you're fighting against that is more talented than you are, is athletic, more athletic than you are and is making $19 million. And you have a coach that's going to probably be in a lame duck season. Either he goes to the playoffs or he's out on his tail um, after this year. So it's, it's kind of a Justin Fields, Matt Nagy situation. You, you go and uh, draft the, the future of your franchise possibly, but you're not going to be around to see it type of mentality. So it, it's tough. I, I do see a team swooping in at number 32 hmm. uh, to do what, what the Vikings and what the Ravens have done in the past to grab that guy with the, so they could get the fifth year option. So expect that somebody to trade a little, a trade, with Detroit to pop in there at the end of the first round yeah. and make a splash. Yeah. And Detroit can obviously use the draft picks. Um, last thing here, and then I'll, I'll let you go. You've been far too generous with your time. Um, I love, and I mentioned it earlier, you go out, you speak to teams, you do a lot of public speaking. Do you have, um, do you have like a story or a moment that you can share with us and the listeners to kind of give that, that essence of when you've gone to a school and obviously you can leave now names out or whatever, but just the interaction you had with a player who after you got a chance to talk to just really sticks out into your mind is like, wow, my story, this, this is why I'm doing this. Cause I have a chance to actually impact these kids lives and, and, and show them, you know, not necessarily like, like you said, not the wrong way to do something. Right. But just to hopefully help change and, and help them grow. Yeah. It's usually about choices, you know, and just understanding what, what choices mean uh, and the, the, wherewithal to understand that you have a choice when you come to a fork in the road, regardless to deal with any situation in a positive and healthy way or a negative and toxic one. So um, I don't know if the pandemic had something to do with it, but last year's teams I spoke to um, really seemed to, to buy in. And there were many of them because I give my phone number out to the entire team uh, when I'm done speaking and uh, to see the amount of text messages I got that night and then throughout the season when things got tough. The biggest thing is people can go out and talk all they want about how they've dealt with mental illness and stuff like that or, or if they're going through a hard time. 
the, the answer is behind the action. Like, do you reach out to somebody when you're struggling mm-hmm. or do you still live in that stigma of like going, Oh, I'm the big, strong football player. And Ryan was here and he, I'm going exact going through exactly what he was feeling, but you know, I don't want to look weak. And that's what the stigma is. And what I saw this last year from a lot of the guys I talked to, they didn't see the stigma. They saw like, Oh, I'm, I'm struggling with something. I'm going to reach out to a guy that, that opened his arms to me. And um, I saw a lot of that from, I usually go to anywhere from five to eight squads in the fall. And uh, um, I anticipate doing that again this year. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's hugely beneficial to me. It's funny how, when you find the life of your dreams or, or what, what makes you feel most content is, is has nothing to do with you and everything to do with somebody else. That's, that's something that I didn't fully understand until I was humbled in the way I needed to be. And, and these, these organizations, these coaches that give me the opportunity to do it, give me that they give me an opportunity to be of service and it helps, it helps prolong and save my life. So that's, that's wonderful. That's, that's amazing, man. And, uh, you, you, your generosity is, is felt today in this interview and, and has been felt in, in the three years I've been lucky enough to know you and get to work with you. And uh, I can't thank you enough for the time, dude. This was a ton of fun. Your story is amazing. Everybody go check out Bust on Spotify. You can also listen to him, Pac-12 Radio and Sirius XM Channel 373, ESPNU Radio. You see him on ESPN, Sky Sports, Westwood One, at Ryan D. Leaf yeah. on Twitter. All this stuff. You're a media mogul, man. You're a media mogul. You're taking over. Well, you know what? The, the, it's amazing that everybody loves the opportunity. I will say this, and this is the insecurity in me, and so there's <laughs> truthfulness to it. I would just love for somebody to say, Ryan, you're mine. I don't want you to go anywhere else. I want you right here with me always. Uh, just Instead, nowhere just like, else. Hey, yeah, man, you're good. Go ahead. Take him. Take him. Take, take him this weekend. <laughs> yeah, you get I'm not here. complaining. I'm not complaining. That's amazing. Well, dude, thank you again. You're the best. And I appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking again soon, buddy. All right, Gimp. Awesome to see you, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Will do. Once again, huge shout out to Ryan Leaf. Uh, Hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I certainly did. Uh, Just a super powerful story. Um, Really down to earth guy who, you know, has been up on the podium, you know, in in New York for the the Heisman ceremony next. Get this, by the way. He says this in the podcast, but. Do you know the three other players who were at the Heisman ceremony the year he was up for it? Man, um, was it Ricky Williams or was he already out? No, not Ricky Williams. Uh, who was it? Go ahead. It was Peyton. Okay. Which, oh, yeah. Uh, and... Charles Woodson, who won that year. And Randy, yes. and Randy Moss. Wow, that's a group. Isn't that an incredible group? Three Hall of that's Famers. Inc- and then leave and it was so cool he you know he shares it on the podcast so again here's another reason why you should go listen to it he talks about that night and how that was the pinnacle of his career as like a celebrity as a, as an athlete because he was there in new york with his dad they went out to like a, a high there's like a big party afterward with all the heisman winners and his dad is just out there and he's remember he's from like the sticks in this small little country town in montana and his dad's out there in the middle of the dance floor doing karaoke with like Archie Griffin and like, oh. some, like some of the greatest Heisman play. And it's like, you go to the line, it's like hall of fame or one of the great Bo Jackson, all these amazing guys. And then just like Dan leaf. And you're like, yeah. and he's, and he's like, it was such an amazing moment. And, uh, and he actually compared it to like why a lot of guys want to stay home now for the draft, because it's a, it, it is like a family moment and to make it less about them and to make it more about the family, which I think is awesome. I think it's awesome. Um, but yeah, Ryan leaf, follow him Twitter at Ryan D leaf. 
uh, ESPNU Radio, Pac-12 Radio, that's Channel 84, Channel 373, Sky Sports, Westwood One, ESPN, uh, and of course his podcast, Bust, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, uh, we are re-recording this. Uh, I said it, I recorded that little intro before the show started last week, kind of explaining what happened. Um, but essentially, technology sucks sometimes, and uh, some of that stuff's out of our control. We basically lost all of our uh, you know, conversation regarding the offensive prospects here. So you got the defense on Tuesday, and you're going to get the offense here. We just talked with Ryan a little bit about uh, the quarterback class this year, and Ryan's really high on three guys, right? Three guys, and then he thinks it drops off. It's Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, and Matt Corral, uh, and then that's where he sees the kind of drop-off going. So we're going to start here. Uh, Vito, what is your ranking? We, we can even say if you have someone else that's in that top three that's not there, if those are your two, three or top three, how would you rank those guys in terms of favorite to least favorite? I would say uh, Malik Willis, Matt Corral, then Kenny Pickett. I think Desmond Ritter's right there. I, I really do. I don't think, I, I know everyone thinks there's a bigger drop off than probably I do, is what I'm trying to say. I think he's, I would say those four. Um, and it seems like for some reason everyone goes from those top three and they mentioned him and they talk about Sam Howell, but like, I really, for some reason he sticks out to me. And I know um, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of times that offense actually did get shut down, but I, again, he, he actually practiced right against the defense that Cincinnati defense was great. And you're talking about two cornerbacks who will be drafted. One is everyone. A lot of people say are the best number one ESPN ranked corner among Gardner and then obviously they had Kobe Bryant who I still think is like the coolest name it's Kobe with a C but that is such a sick name to have for a player I hope we see more Kobe Bryant's out there if that's your last name you got to do that yeah if you uh, you have that last name then it it seems it's a godsend (laughs) at this point and so uh anyway that's my ranking of those quarterbacks though is I would actually go Malik Willis Matt Corral Kenny Pickett and and again I actually like Desmond Ritter a lot I I would have it's hard for me to choose between him and Kenny actually, but I would probably put Kenny above him. What, where, where do you fall on this? I'm if we're just talking talent, it's Malik Corral, Kenny. And then we're talking probably Desmond Ritter, Sam Howell as kind of even um, the thing I like about this class is that all these quarterbacks are really easy to root for. You know, Malik Willis is easy to yeah. root for Kenny Pickett's easy to root for Matt Corral's easy to root for Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter, Carson Strong, Bailey Zappi, like the top six guys are all guys that like, I want to go see succeed in the NFL. Actually, I said seven guys. I don't know how to do math. Um, but like, I, I really like also like all seven of those guys to me have a chance to, to be a decent player in the NFL. Now, obviously Zappi, Carson Strong, you're dealing with a little bit more of that long shot. Carson Strong out of Nevada, super talented, really big body, really big arm. And then Bailey Zappi, you know, from Western Kentucky, FCS transfer, followed his offensive coordinator from the FCS up to Western Kentucky. And uh, beauty of the transfer portal, you know, we wouldn't know anything about Bailey Zappi. Otherwise, he broke all of Joe Burrow's record. 61 touchdowns, broke the Joe Burrow record, beat him in passing yards beat the Joe Burrow record. Uh, just a really, really good quarterback. And what I love about him, too, he's got this, like, little fuck you edge to him. Like, he went out in the in the bowl game Western Kentucky played in and was like, it was fourth quarter. He needed one more touchdown to break the record. And they had the game in hand. And he's like, fuck no, we're slinging this shit. He's like, we're slinging this all over the yard. And he went out and did it. What a beautiful touchdown pass. Now, at the top end, Malik Willis definitely has um, the most raw talent, right? He initially got recruited to go play at Auburn had some off the field issues at Auburn and had to transfer to Liberty. Now 
he plays in that system there. Um, how am I blanking a Liberty's co- uh, Hugh Freeze, the Liberty head coach, who's had plenty of uh, uh, you know issues of his own. But what it really seems like Malik Willis has whatever uh, public image existed around him has been shattered. And a lot of that stuff came from what happened at the combine. Remember he gave the t-shirt and food to the homeless guy. And some people thought it was fake. Some people thought it was real. You know, it was a whole thing regardless. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and, and say it's, it's real. He seems like a really good kid and he has been impressing people a lot. I think he's at this point, a lock to go in the top 10. I don't know who it's going to be, whether it's Atlanta or Carolina. I think one of those two teams ends up taking a chance on him because he is a great athlete because he does have a rocket for an arm. I mean, he was the guy this year making those Zach Wilson on the run throws that everybody was freaking out about at pro days last year. He's the only guy in this class who, well, Matt Corral can do it a little bit too. But he's really the only guy with that arm strength. Corral's just so freaking smooth. Everything with him is just like a wrist flip. You know, it's it's like throwing a, it's darts, right? Like, you know, when people say they're throwing darts, it's like literally like you're at a bar throwing darts. Like it just whips off of his off of his wrist. Um, and so I would probably have Malik, Matt Corral, Kenny Pickett when we talk about talent. But I'm pretty high on Kenny Pickett, and he's been falling down draft boards pretty hard. At least that's what's been reported. I know Todd McShay said his stock has taken a pretty rough hit over the last couple of weeks. But this is also the, the quintessential time of the year where NFL teams start to overthink the draft, right? Instead of just being <laughs> oh, like, oh, yes. like, oh, I like this kid or whatever. You know, in, in other years, Kenny Pickett would have been a second or third round pick at best last year because of how loaded that quarterback class is. But I, I value experience, which is why I'm also really high on Desmond Ritter. And I also I, – and I wanted to ask this to Ryan. We didn't have time to get to it. But I, I think it's unfair that we're – we're already projecting that this is going to be the EJ Manuel, Christian Ponder, Jake Locker type of draft, right? Where like all mm-hmm. these guys are going to suck just because there's not one. And I went back and was reading some articles about the 2017 draft, right? Which had uh, Trubisky and then Mahomes and then Deshaun Watson. And people were saying virtually the exact same thing about this draft that that draft that they're saying about this draft, right? And it took the right situation. And I think ultimately that's going to, to determine whether or not this is a good draft or a bad draft, right? Whether these quarterbacks can be a pro, they can't, you know, Mahomes was afforded the luxury to go sit behind Alex Smith for a year and to work on his mechanics with one of the best offensive coaches in the history of the NFL with Andy Reed. And that ultimately is why we talk about him as the face of the league now compared to, you know, if he went to 30 other teams, yeah. probably we may not be talking about Patrick Mahomes that way. And then Deshaun Watson, same thing. Deshaun Watson was good enough to take Houston and elevate them pretty much on his own. And we all just missed out on that. For whatever reason, we all dinged up Deshaun Watson, which I never got. I always thought Deshaun Watson was going to be a really, really good pro. And turns Same. out he was. And I think it, there's a lot of examples of this. Ben Roethlisberger, just because he was out of Miami of Ohio, yeah. right? It's like Malik had Liberty. It's like, oh, who's – literally there was a commercial made by NFL. I believe fantasy football is trying to catch on. And they're like – who would you have Roethlisberger take your picks back coward? Like, I don't give a shit or some comment like that. And it was like, Oh my God, like no one cared about that class. Like there were some other classes like that where you may have had a guy, but there's always quarterbacks that are talked about like this. And there's a big group of them. And I personally believe, you know, at least one of these guys is going to turn out. So, and you're right. A lot of it depends on the situation they go to. So sometimes when, the top two or three teams, like the Jets aren't drafting a quarterback every year. Guess what? The quarterback's more likely to, it's going to work out because they're not going to a franchise. that's in shambles, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and we talked a little bit about this with Leaf in the interview, but 
where do you think is the, because I have the team in my mind that I think would be the best place for Malik Willis, but I think there's two other teams in the top 10 who could swoop in and, and take him uh, if he decides to go or if the rumors start to swirl, right? I think the Giants are one of those teams that, you know, hey, Daniel, Danny Dimes on his last year, basically his last chance, but, you know, I think we all kind of know how we feel about Danny Dimes, right? And then uh, I would say the same thing about the Panthers. You know, Ben McAdoo comes out the other day, puts his, puts his foot in the mouth in his mouth and says, oh, yeah, Sam Darnold's our starting quarterback next year. Well, I'll be honest, I don't want Malik Willis to go play for a coach who's on the hot seat, who this year, if Matt Rule doesn't put out, he's probably going to get fired. And if Ben McAdoo is the guy who's running that offense, I'm not sure how – what version of Ben McAdoo are we getting? You know, right. are we getting Giants or are we getting Green Bay? Right, because they're two different guys. But he also had the luxury of coaching Aaron Rodgers when he was in Green Bay. Um, but the team that I want to see Malik Willis go to is Atlanta. Uh, I, really? I, I trust in Arthur Smith. Um, we saw the difference in Matt Ryan – or sorry, Matt Ryan, Ryan Tannehill this year without him this – and then granted, he also didn't have Derrick Henry for most of the year, which absolutely plays a role. But I think we did see there was a different version of Ryan Tannehill, the passer – um, and just schematically, and I, I would trust him, man. He's got a good weapon down there in Kyle Pitts. It's a young team that's rebuilding. He's going to get a lot of reps right away to come in there and compete. And I, I think Malik Willis, and he's also an Atlanta fan. Like he grew up a Falcons fan. He's a diehard Atlanta Hawks and Braves fan. And he's from, I think he's from South Carolina. Um, so it's right in his kind of neighborhood there. And I think Malik Willis in Atlanta would make a lot of sense. No, it was Matt Ryan, not Tannehill. You, I think, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, 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 I yeah, I meant Tannehill. Because he was Arthur Smith was the, was the offensive coordinator in Tennessee. He leaves to go to Atlanta. I'm just, sorry. Now I'm falling. See, this is good. I need the clarification. That's a um, the, well. When the last name and the first name, it was all it was all so, jumbled. It's so hard. It was a Ryan guy, and he did well. Um, yeah. So uh, the the team that I I was going to ask you, what do you think about Washington's chances of of taking Willis? Um, I don't know. I I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I just I was so shocked when they. Obviously, when they got Wentz, and it was just like, all right, what, what are, is this the long term? Is the plan to have him draft Willis, see, like, right, sit a year, the Mahomes, you know, path and, and what used to be every quarterback's path? But yeah. uh, um, there's something there. And, and I think that I just can't tell from that front office, which no one knows what the hell's going on in the front office. But Ron Rivera, again, we all believe will stabilize that franchise. And, and, is this finally the time they say, hey, this is the most important position. Yeah. We're not only going to go in the offseason, we're going to go in the draft. I, I don't know, though. Will the number one quarterback even be there at 11? Because yeah. I don't know. Well, and, and I'll say I would be surprised if they I, th- I would think Washington would probably have to draft up if they want or trade up if they wanted Malik Willis. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, I think they're actually committed to Carson Wentz. I think they're committed to, hey, you know, and, and it's it seems a lot more on brand for Ron Rivera to be like, Hey, we're committing to Carson Wentz for this year. Because if you bring in another young quarterback behind Carson Wentz, you are asking to, for him to fail immediately. Right. We saw how poorly he did when he had the pressure of Jalen hurts behind him, let alone if they draft a first round quarterback to go behind him. Right. His ego is so fragile as it is. And I think if you're going to bring in Carson Wentz, you're paying him all that money. I think you have to just commit to him and just and just ride it out. I don't think you can have two quarterbacks in there, and I don't think uh, Ron Rivera would be inclined to do that. Now, if the front office decides to go in another direction, you know, I mean, Dan Snyder overrode the front office and Jay Gruden to draft Dwayne Haskins. You know, the, the front office and the coaching staff didn't want Dwayne Haskins, but Dan Snyder's son 
went to high school with uh, Dwayne Haskins and he wanted him. He was a local kid and he was going to make sure that he played for the Washington football team. And ultimately, you know, again, not trying to pull an out of Schefter here, you know, horrible what happened to Dwayne Haskins, but that didn't work out in Washington and uh, it didn't work out quick. So you never know what that organization, if Dan Snyder, which granted right now, given all the hot water they're in and, and dealing with now congressional shit too. Like we're not, you know, we're not just talking about lawsuits and, and allegations. We're talking about like Congress is going, you know, th- there are actual hearings that are going to be set up where Dan Snyder is going to have to go stand on the stand. Um, yeah. I, I just, you never know, but I don't think that would be a good fit. I, and for Pickett and Corral. I hope, I, yeah. I hope it doesn't happen. To yeah. Be honest. Uh, I think Kenny Pickett's going to end up sliding and I think somebody drafts Matt Corral pretty high. I don't know if it'll be like New Orleans, you know, they have two first round picks. I could see them taking a chance. I think someone's going to fall in love with, with the arm. Um, And, and Leaf pointed this out too. I mean, he's the best RPO uh, quarterback in this draft and he would be a great fit with Matt Canada, the offensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, And, and and on top of that too, Matt Corral's biggest, the biggest concern with Matt Corral is going to be durability and his size and how he can hang. Right. And, and what can he, what kind of shots can he take and still be able to get up and, and continue to play in that offense. And we saw big Ben do it. They get the ball out so quickly because you have to make your decisions and you have to make your decisions fast. And I think Matt Corral in that offense, it'll protect him from getting destroyed. Uh, and it also would be, you know, you're putting in with Mike Tomlin. I would, I would love to see that for Corral or Kenny Pickett. But also, if Pittsburgh doesn't take Kenny Pickett, I think that says a lot about how they view him because, you know, they, they practice in the same facility. They play in the same stadium, yeah. right? You know, if anyone's going to have good information on Kenny Pickett, it's going to be the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I, I, so I think both go in the first round. Don't, one other note, too, is if either one of them does slide, I think somebody, and this is another thing Leaf said, so you guys just heard this, but somebody will trade up to 32 and with the Detroit Lions and get him get one of those guys, whoever falls, just so they have that fifth year of control in case it does work out. Um, and a team like Detroit sitting at 32, they need more draft picks. So if a team's willing yeah. to trade a couple of seconds to move up to 32 and they slide back a little bit in the draft and they pick up another draft pick, I think Detroit would be willing to do that because they're just trying to restock their whole fridge as <laughs> if it were. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how the quarterbacks go. I still like Sam Howell too. I think Sam Howell got a, got a tough rap. Uh, his numbers were almost identical to what they were the year before in which people thought he was the slam dunk number one overall pick going into this draft. Uh, Well, maybe not number one, but was the number one quarterback coming into this draft a year ago and his numbers didn't dip and his two starting running backs, his number one and number two wide receivers and half of his offensive line all left the year, you know, after the 2020 season and now 2021, he didn't have any of that and he had to do more on his own. So in a lot of ways, I actually have more respect for Hal and that experience we're talking about with Ritter and him who I'm high on Ritter hitter uh, Ritter to me is very similar to the Jalen hurts thing. Ton of experience has won a lot. He's fourth all time in college football history for wins as a quarterback. Um, and, And that experience that betting on a person betting on a, the guy's an adult. He's had a kid since he was a junior in college, right? He's got a wife. He's got a family, you know, that, that you're bringing an adult into the locker room that people are going to respect and look up to from the second he steps foot. So that's mine. Um, let's do quickly, quickly talk about running backs. Cause to me, this is a three running back group. Um, I have uh, Kenneth Walker, the third, obviously he's up there, Brees Hall from Iowa state. And then Isaiah Spiller from Texas A&M. All three of those guys are going to be good. 
Uh, and I think all three of those guys will be productive NFL running backs. Uh, a lot of people have Bryce Hall or Brees Hall as the number one guy. I know Scotty's very high on Brees Hall. I'm not as high on Brees Hall. Uh, I think Kenneth Walker, I'm also a little worried about that as well. Some of the injury stuff with him and his past, and he had one amazing year at Michigan State, and that's really all the production we saw out of him. Not to say that he can't be an amazing pro. He obviously could be. But the guy that I'm most excited about is Isaiah, uh, Isaiah Spiller out of Texas A&M. He's a dude who's carbon copy to put in the NFL and play, right? You can spread him out and play him out of the slot as a wide receiver if you want to. He catches the ball great out of the backfield, and he's big enough, uh, six foot 217, to run in between the tackles. He's an absolute burner. Um, he's the guy that if you're looking at second round, third round, there's a running back on the board and a super not, not very deep running back class, I wouldn't hate, you know, taking a flyer on Isaiah Spiller. It's not a bad point, but I, I am in love with Kenneth Walker III. I, I really am, man. I, I think that this guy is going to be a pro for a long time, and I'm really excited to see what happens. I'm higher than him over Brees Hall. Um, a lot of people have also talked about James Cook out of Georgia. Uh, we'll see where he falls. It's He's kind of in that same tier, I feel like, as uh, Spiller, where it's just not a deep running back class, like you said. Or And, and the other fact is that everyone thinks these guys are going to slide. We will see what happens when someone takes, I feel like, Cook or Spiller. The other one will go quick. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, And Zemir, me, you have Zemir White, too, Zeus. Yes. Zeus White, he's he's good out of Georgia. Um, and you know what, here, I'll throw even one more name out there. Guy who stuck around through a lot of the, the shit that went on at Oklahoma. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Kennedy Brooks. I like Kennedy Brooks, man. He had such a – you know, he was struggling through the first half of the year until they made the switch with Caleb Williams, which obviously freed up a lot. Um, but the second they did and they put him with a mobile quarterback, they put him in a situation that worked better for him. He was amazing for them. I mean, like amazing. Uh, and yes, I do think it's going to take some, you know, a, the right system kind of thing. Same thing with Jerome Ford, the running back out of uh, Cincinnati, another dude who can just yeah. absolutely fly on the field. Um, this feels like to me, like this is going to be a year where there's a couple of guys, Kyron Williams out of Notre Dame as well. Um, who you'll find later in the draft and you're like, man, where the hell did this kid come from? Uh, because there's, there's a lot of production on the college level out of this crew. And I think that's probably playing a part as to why they're drafted a little lows. Cause a lot of these guys have some tread, um, not a whole lot of tread left on the tire, so to speak. Right. Out of, they burnt through a good chunk of it, at least, you know, being an every down back, like that's a concern I have with Kenneth Walker for as much as I do like him. Um, I also love the Kenneth Walker's like five nine, and he's just short yeah. and compact, and and he his pad yeah. level gets so low. I mean, that's yeah. what it's about, and and naturally he's a little yeah. shorter. It's, it's now what whether or not he can bulk up to the point of like a Nick Chubb, who's similar frame, you know, and, and can run guys over in the NFL. I don't know, but I do like Kenneth Walker the third, and it's hard to argue with the season he just put up. Uh, let's switch now to the wide receiver room, which. Uh, this year is a fascinating year for wide receivers. Um, there are a ton of different guys you can look to. I think it goes about eight deep, uh, just that guys who could go in the first round again. Uh, and, uh, and we talked about this the other day, obviously got cut, but uh, you're very high on one of the Ohio State wide receivers. I am. I really feel like Chris Olave is a plug and play guy in the NFL. I feel like he's the guy who has been around for Ohio State for multiple quarterbacks. He's no matter what, right? You sometimes you see that come in and people change and, and they go back to their guy. Happened with the Broncos last year with even Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater, right? With Tim Patrick, like it, it definitely matters. And no matter what has happened though, 
throughout Ohio State, the three quarterbacks that Chris Olave has played for, he was the go-to guy for all of them. And I firmly believe that he's a guy, when you watch, maybe he didn't run well, but the guy's got the speed on tape. And I think that when you watch tape, which is what should be the most important, not a 40-time in Indy on one day, right, or even a pro day, I, I just firmly believe that he's a guy who has playing speed, you got to remember Jerry Rice didn't run a fast 40 and no one caught Jerry Rice. He just no. played. He's, he always said like his quote was, I loved catching the ball. I'd rather catch a five yard slant and run 60 yards than catch a 65 yard bomb because I love the feeling when your hair is standing up on your neck and you know, you're running from like being just smothered. And I was like, yeah. that, there's something about that that takes a certain human being. And I think Chris Olave is that type of human being. Um, I think he's I was been in anywhere he goes. I was not that kid. And, and I, I hated getting chased like playing tag or, or anything. The, oh, I, I hate, love that. Oh, I, I hated getting chased. So I can't relate to Jerry Rice on that one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I think you're right. I love Chris Olave too. I, I think Chris Olave, the plug and play is exactly right. And I think as we've expanded on the depth of wide receivers, right, in the first round of the last couple of years and how good they are, the last few years there's been two wide receivers that have, for whatever reason, kind of been um, – Slept on may not be the right word because I wouldn't say Devontae Smith was slept on. The dude won the Heisman as a wide receiver. But both (laughs) him and Justin Jefferson, I think, and Justin Jefferson the year before, were guys that for whatever reason there was – you fell in love with Jamar Chase's speed, right? You fell in love with, you know, uh, Henry Ruggs or or some of these – Jerry Judy, some of these other guys who went ahead of him. There was just something like tangible about like, like, oh, he ran this 40-time or, oh, he, he did this one thing on tape or his route tree was so good. His route running was so good. Um, and yet we just kind of overlooked this whole, like, yeah, but like, did, like just watch the tape, you know, the eye yeah. in the sky don't lie. Yeah. You know, the, the combine lies to you. The combine lies to you every single fucking year. The tape never lies. And, and Justin Jefferson was cooking dudes at, at you know, uh, LSU and Devonte Smith won the fucking Heisman as a wide receiver. Yeah. And, and yet both of those guys, for whatever reason, weren't, you know, the, now granted Jamar Chase, understandably had you know was the best wide receiver rookie in this year's last year's class um but i think Olave kind of fits in that same mold right people are falling in love falling in love with drake london people are falling in love with garrett wilson and jameson williams all understandably so jameson williams if he doesn't tear his acl in the national championship game i think is the first wide receiver taken off the board and he could be an amazing pro absolutely no question uh i have garrett wilson a little bit higher than Olave, only because he does all the same things Alave does, except he just does them a couple of things just a little bit better, but they're both very similar players. Uh, and then Drake London, I saw somebody say this on Twitter the other day, and it's a great, great comp. It's like he's either going to be uh, J.J. Ortega Whiteside or he's going to be Michael Oven, Mike Evans. And there's, there's, there's nothing in between. It's going to be one of those two. And if he's Mike Evans, then he's a home run slam dunk, right? But if he's Jay Jaw, which is a totally realistic possibility, then you're wasting another first round pick. Uh, but the guy that I'm falling more and more in love with in the first round at wide receiver is the kid out of Arkansas, Traylon Burks. Um, that that guy, man, he is built like a fucking brick shit house. Like he is just absolutely jacked, right? He's a he's a slightly smaller. Uh, DK right except he's a much better route runner he's a lot smoother he helped turn KJ Jefferson who was like an okay mediocre SEC quarterback into a very good quarterback last year for the Razorbacks uh and, and a lot of the stuff he does you know in triple there was one deep ball he caught it was like triple teams and he just his, his ability to high point balls he does everything well 
everything on a football field, he does well. And his breakaway speed, even though he is 6'2", 225, he's the heaviest and biggest wide receiver in this year's class, he has better breakaway speed if you follow the you know GPS metrics than like Drake London um, and as good as Jameson Williams and Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave and those guys too. He's just built so freaking massive. And I said for the Eagles, that's the guy I wanted the Eagles to target because I think he's a perfect complement piece to what you have with Devontae Smith on the other side, which also Debo Samuel might be available. So, you know, who knows what happens on, on draft night. That could be a whole nother in, you know, wrinkle into this. Do you go get the rookie quarter rookie wide receiver on the, on the rookie contract, or do you go pay, you know, Debo Samuel $25 million a year? Another question, another, you know, conversation for another day when we get Scotty back, because we know he's in mourning about the whole thing, but I, I really love Traylon Burks and I love his attitude and anybody who can succeed at Arkansas when you're going up in the in the SEC West and you're playing Auburn, you're playing Alabama, you're playing Texas A&M and you're playing these absolute giants and you're still the best wide receiver arguably in the entire conference with a significantly worse quarterback than like Jameson Williams played with. It says a lot about you. I agree. And, it, and it's actually one of the reasons why like, and, and he's a Penn state guy, John Dotson, Mm-hmm. Dotson had an incredible year with, I would say at best mediocre quarterback play. Like, let's be honest. It just, it wasn't there this year for Clifford. Like he was inconsistent on his throws. There was a lot of misses where Dotson was open, but Dotson made a couple plays like the one handed catch and run against Ohio state. There's some highlight tapes you'll see. And you're like, that's a, this guy like just has it. And, mm-hmm. and he just catches everything his way. That's the key, right? At the end of the day, you can run as fast as you want. Are you going to catch the ball or not? And and this guy can pluck it out the sky and run. I think there's probably about six or seven guys out of this year, this year's class of wide receivers. And it may go pretty deep, um, you know, to the fifth or sixth rounds that are great ball catchers. So it's going to be interesting to see where a lot of these guys fall. Um, one last pass catcher but in the tight end class i will well, we'll get we'll, we'll get to the tight ends are, we, are you gonna get because, in there okay because it's a one-man tight end class and i think we i think we know that here um i, I just because I, I wanted to touch on just a couple of the wide receivers before we move over there right um i'm with you on on jahan dots absolute burner and i think we do a really bad job and we get lazy because we see penn state slightly undersized really fast and you go oh he's just kj hamler again well what where did kj hamler go oh kj hamler went early in the second round okay cool that's you know pencil him in for there um and i still think kj hamler's good jahan dotson is a much more well-rounded wide receiver and a much better prospect than kj hamler was and again no disrespect to kj hamler whatsoever i still think and hope you know he recovers from the injury and has a great uh, career and a great season this year um but i love jahan dotson there too Christian Watson is the name that a lot of people are talking about, right? He's FCS guy. Mm-hmm. He could be great, right? I watched him torch JMU in the FCS playoffs. He's a really, <laughs> really good wide receiver. The one thing I'm going to say is that, and, and believe it or not, NFL front offices do think this way. They go, oh, well, Cooper Cup was FCS guy. And Cooper Cup just had a triple crown as a wide receiver, you know, which is the offensive player of the year, like, he, he could be the next Cooper Cup. You know, what if we find this diamond in the rough? Maybe. And, and would it be worth taking a flyer in the second round on him? Yeah, probably. But this, this idea that, like, he's a slam dunk already, there is a certain risk reward you have to talk about when you're talking about FCS guys. And I defend FCS players a ton. But it is a completely different – we're not talking about Western Kentucky to the NFL. You know, we're talking about playing South Dakota State and playing Montana and playing – 
you know, schools out in the middle of nowhere, Northern Illinois, it, hell, Northern Illinois is even group of five. So it, it's just a, it's a huge jump. And yes, they could come in and be great, but Cooper cup is more of the exception than the rule. So I just say pump the brakes on him. Same thing with George Pickens. Uh, he didn't get a chance to play much this past year. He probably would have been in that conversation for top guys, big, tall, lean wide receiver, six, three, one doesn't run incredible, but has better in-game speed. Um, and he's a very good high point guy, but I would be worried. I'd be wary about him because at least with like Drake London, we know he's got the quick twitch. So I'm okay with, with that. I, I'm a little worried about George Pickens there, especially coming off of the ACL uh, about a year ago. That was, it was in, it was their spring game uh, a year ago. And then the other name I'll throw out there too, is, is John Mechie. Um, yeah. Kid from Alabama, another part of that dynamic duo. He got injured in the SEC championship game. He was probably going to be a second round pick at best. I don't think he was ever really flirting with the first rounder. He's going to be a guy that, Hey, you're in the third round and he's still there. And you want to take the flyer. Cause Hey, you know what? Fuck you. We have a couple third round picks. Like I would love for the, the Eagles to, to draft a wide receiver in the first round. And then to also grab a guy like Mechie who played with Devonte Smith and Jalen hurts. Um, and that you could kind of have there in that locker room, I, I think would be a nice bet. Um, all right. Now let's talk about the one man tight end class. Uh, and man, I got I got to scroll down here on the CBS position rankings to get to him. But uh, your boy Grant Calcaterra, I know you got big plans for to go down for him with at, for his draft party. You're going to be there with him in Dallas. No, uh, out in California. Or California. Um, go, sorry. Go flip out my old neighborhood. Uh, just a good family friends. Going to going to be around the area. We'll see what he wants to do. I mean, listen, it's his day, and and hopefully he gets his name called here. But I, listen, this tight end class is actually not the best I would say that we've seen we've had multiple tight ends go in the first round in recent years and definitely a couple here and there, but um, I don't know if one single tight end will get called in round one or possibly even round two. Um, it's going to be a different kind of style here, but the upside on Grant Calcaterra is through the roof. I mean, the guy played for two Heisman trophy winning quarterbacks and then Jalen hurts at Oklahoma. Then he goes to SMU and transfers there with, uh, his quarterback, the backup quarterback from Oklahoma, and they have a great year. And you can look at his his blocking. I mean, his downfield blocking, especially uh, on runs. The guy's a huge effort player. He's, he's been a captain at almost everywhere he's been uh, since high school. So you're bringing in a good quality locker room guy. But the guy can just flat out run and catch a ball. He had a one handed catch against Texas in the big 10, uh, in the big 10 championship game. It was incredible. Uh, and, and like, that's the kind of guy you're, you're getting, you can do it all. And he's a great teammate. Uh, I can't speak high enough of him as a person. And obviously as a player, the, uh, I, maybe I'm biased. I don't know, Jeff, I don't know if, if maybe I am, but the upside there again, if he didn't medically retire and come back, I think we're talking about him as potentially the first tight end taken off this board. So I think, yeah, I think, you know, I do think that's true. I think if he'd stayed at Oklahoma, he didn't, you know, medically retire and then come back and he, you know, doesn't go to SMU. I, I do think you're right. I think we are talking about him as probably like a second or third round pick. Um, and, and we know Grant listens to this pod. We're huge fans. We're all pulling for Grant. We're all rowing the boat here for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, there's going to be risk involved, right? A- anytime mm-hmm. a player has concussions and a concussion history, it's a concern. I think that will ultimately ding some of his draft, uh, draft stock. But there's no question by the time training camp rolls around, he's going to be on an NFL roster. And I hope somebody is is brave enough to take that chance and draft them because the production is there. And if it's a late rounder, hey, let's take a flyer on a guy who could come in and be a receiving tight end. I think he's a fantastic option. 
Um, and like I said, we're all we're all pulling for him there. No question. Um, I do want to give love. I have three names here. I'm going to pull out here that aren't Grant, though. Again, this is a one tight end draft class. We agree. One one tight end and one tight end only. Um, Charlie Kolar from Iowa State uh, had a bit of a disappointing year, but so did all of Iowa State. Like the, the whole <laughs> team had a disappointing year. Um, but he has, again, he's 6'6", 250, big body, really good blocking tight end. He's someone that, like, may not be a dynamic, you know, pass-catching kind of guy. But I, he, A, has the ability, too. He did it a bunch, you know, there with, uh, with uh, Brock Purdy and, and Brees Hall down in, uh, in Iowa State. Uh, but you like, he's a guy I could, again, just see being a grinder, hangs around for a while. I don't think we're looking at him as that upside to be like, oh, this guy could be a stud right? Um, this guy could be a Pro Bowl tight end. I don't think that's the ceiling with Kolar. I mean, again, we all are wrong about this shit all the time, so who knows? But I do like Charlie Kolar. Uh, Jelani Woods, uh, the six seven freak out of Virginia, and honestly, I feel bad even saying freak because I feel like they probably get annoyed by hearing that. Um, totally normal person, but uh, physically is just gifted in ways that normal human beings aren't. Uh, very raw, very raw, but if again, we've seen projects work in the NFL. We've seen guys like Jordan Mailata turn out to be studs, and you just say, you know what, I'm just going to take this body, and we're going to put him in our system. We're going to coach him up like he's a college kid, and we're going to continue to develop him and hope that the athletic, tan, you know, intangible stuff, things you just can't teach, size, speed, athleticism, that's the stuff we're going to help turn into what could be a really dynamic player. And the one guy who I think is going to be a really – really good pro i think he has the pass catching skills to be a really like a pro bowl type guy is greg dulcich out of ucla um and the thing with him too is you know he's 6'4 243 and you think oh that's undersized he has the biggest hands of any player like in all of college football like his hands are enormous like what it's scotty said this the other day uh he's got hands the size of dinner plates you know like yeah. he he is that big and and he's a freak athlete as well, really fast. But the thing I love about him too, and this is the, the thing that a lot of people get tripped up on with Ch uh, Chip Kelly offenses is they think, Oh, it's just spread it out, throw it, you know, Mike Leach style. It's not, it's, it's so not. much they of the run so game. Yeah. And so the amount of run blocking he had to do, I actually think hurt his draft prospects in terms of being a pass catcher, because when he did get the opportunity to do that, not only could he run block, we know he can do that, but he can catch the ball too. And so I think he's a great, value pick in the second second day whether that's round two or round three i like greg dulcich a lot um and, and all you gotta do is just put on the tape and the kid jumps off the screen anytime i see a player who jumps off the screen when you watch it i'm like that's a dude you want that's a dude that has skills that translate to the nfl immediately it might not be yeah. a perfect fit with some teams you might have to work on them with some stuff but if if you're watching college tape at a power five level and a kid jumps off the tape like that you know that he has a chance to be a really, really good pro. Um, so Greg Dulcich would be the name uh, I would I would also throw out there. Uh, let's wrap up here with the offensive line because very likely the number two overall pick is going to be an offensive tackle. Evan Neal, dude wears 350 pounds better than any human being that has ever existed. He's obviously 6'7", so it makes it a little yeah. easier. Um, but, you know, you see guys like Lane Johnson with six packs and they're playing right tackle. And you're like, these talk about guys who just aren't the same species as you and I. That That's kind of the guy that Evan Neal is. I, I think he's a very, very safe, long term NFL starting tackle. Uh, and I think if you are, you know, Detroit, 
you might end up passing on it, right? Um, and honestly, if you're Jacksonville, I would think to draft him over Aiden Hutchinson. I know we talked about it on Tuesday's pod about why you would draft a guy like Hutchinson. But if you can get a long-term starting left tackle to protect Trevor Lawrence and it's not Cam Robinson, which, you know, no offense to Cam Robinson, he's just been a very average player who was another Alabama guy who got drafted in the top 10. Um, I just – I like Evan Neal a lot. I think he's the clear-cut offensive tackle, like exterior guy. The best offensive lineman in this class, though, is Tyler Lindebaum, the uh, center out of Iowa. That dude uh, is a mauler. He's, he's Jason Kelsey 2.0. He's a beast, man. He's what Iowa represents. He's that Big Ten football center. Um, Jason Kelsey's such a great comp. Uh, he's really smart. Uh, his his speed to actually do reach blocks or to get around are, are, is incredible. Um, he gets to the second level two linebackers very well. Um, watching his tape's fun. And and to your point, when you watch tape, sometimes it's hard to watch tape on players. Like it's just not that exciting, and especially for a line. You're like, oh yeah, he did block well, whatever. But no, like he, it's like. Uh, I don't know, his energy for the game jumps off the screen and, and you can like feel it. He's a guy who you can tell is going to impact the team that he plays with. And um, I, I totally agree with that pick. He, he may be the best offensive lineman. Evan Neal, though, is just a beast. And same with Akeem. Um, you're better at names. How do you say uh, Akeem? Uh, Akeem Akunum. See, Akunu. Sorry, Akunu. Thank you. Um, yeah. Sorry. I See, I'm not, it, it's hard, man. It, it, the names thing. I, it's why I have so much respect for people who do play by play and do different teams every single week and that's part of their prep but like those guys can read like phonetic spelling like it's a it's a different language like you could put a whole sentence that's just using phonetic spellings and they'd be able to read it like it's you know to me that looks like like pig latin you know but to them it's different the the one other thing i want to throw there uh, out there about tyler uh linderbaum before we we move on because i i do want to talk about uh kunwu um tyler linderbaum is on most like prospect boards a top 10 player but he's probably not going to get drafted until like the end of the first round. And that's this dumb thing that the NFL front offices do about valuing positions differently. But when you hear quotes from execs saying like, Oh yeah, he's going to be step in and be a 10 year vet and go to multiple pro bowls. Then why wouldn't you draft him higher? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like at some point the best player available has to just be an asset to your team. And, and that's why I love what the Eagles did last year with Landon Dickerson. Right. It was like, yeah, Landon Dickerson's hurt, it's coming off, but he should be able to play by the middle of the season. And, yeah, we have Jason Kelsey, but we'll just slide him over to guard for the meantime, and then eventually Kelsey retires, and he'll probably slide over and get back to playing center. Um, Linderbaum, captain, high-energy guy, country boy, perfect pick. Um, but you're right, uh, Akeem Akunu, uh, Akunu, God, it's hard. Uh, another dude who's I, I think is a home run there. Um, I like him a lot better. A lot of people like uh, Charles Cross. As you heard at the end of last pod, he's one of my biggest stayaways. Um, really, really good pass blocking. We have no idea if the dude can run block whatsoever. And Andre uh, Andre Dillard, who played, was a left tackle for Mike Leach at Washington State, we've learned quickly that you know he's kind of soft. And I think Charles Cross is kind of cut from that same cloth where it's like, yeah, we know he can pass block in a college offense for Mike Leach, but we have no idea if he can handle himself in a, in a downhill running type blocking scheme because he hasn't had to do it for three years. And, and not to mention, like you said, that offense is just so different. I know the NFL is going to passing, but they are still – no one is at the percent that Mike Leach is. Like, his, the disparity between run and pass or even the type of run. They might even pass block and run draws. Like, it's just so funny th- th- how they define a run even in that system. I- I'm with you there. I think those two, uh, Akeem and Evan Neal, are both uh, the guys who are going to go off the board first. 
And I do believe that Linderbaum is, is probably um, the guy who the team who drafts late will probably be happy with. I feel like it's going to be a team of two picks like the Eagles, mm. like someone, you know what I mean? Like someone will say, we have two picks. Well, you're going to spend one on this center who we know, no matter what, if we have like, Hey, we drafted this first rounder and he's a pro bowler consistently. And we took a shot on this wide receiver, right? Like that's yeah. a great combo. Um, so that's, I, I agree. I think we can see him fall. The, the only other guy that I was going to call out on um, the offensive line side is actually um, this dude out of uh, North Dakota, Matt Waletsku. Um, hmm. And the only reason is because in the last few days, I saw some tape of him. And again, it's, it's North Dakota, but he's six, eight. Is and, it North Dakota uh, or North Dakota State? Which one? I think it's just North Dakota. Yeah, they're they're rivals. They're in the same yeah. conference. But I was I was curious there because and, some people say North Dakota when they mean North Dakota State, um, and they're uh, two very different two very, very different programs, different. right? So I'm I'm yep. I was just curious. The green one, not the purple. If that. Oh well, then that's North Dakota State. Green bison. Yeah, green and yellow. Trust me, I know that color combo way too well. In fact, it used to be one of my favorite color combos in sports, like the Oakland A's, the green and yellow. Yeah. And now I see it, and it, it if I see it on a football uniform, it usually gives me like uh, stomach ulcers. Oh god. Uh, but anyway, he, um, damn it. Well, it lists men North Dakota, but North Dakota State, it sounds like, and he is a um, again six eight tackle. It doesn't it, like watching his tape. It seemed like he could almost play tight end. Hmm. Like yeah. I don't know. He just has the look. He needs to fill little, out his body a little bit more. Yes. He's a project, but he's a guy who I do think like watching his, his hand, like his striking almost as a pass blocker and, and just his tenacious. Like, I, I think he's a guy who could be someone that's drafted, goes through an NFL um, level of like weight training and, um, and dietitian and everything like that. In two years, you could see him all of a sudden being like a six, eight, 360 pound guard. Right. Or, or like, I don't know if he'll stay at tackle, but I could see a guy like that moving on the inside. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a good call. He's definitely be more, more than likely would be a later round pick. Um, but again, like guys like that, especially on, along the offensive line as those guard positions, you can get value there in, in the fourth, fifth round. Um, two last names here. I'll bring up, uh, for the offensive line, Trevor Penning out of Northern Iowa, six foot seven, 320 pounds. He is jumping up boards like crazy. Uh, he's an absolute mauler. Right. He's just like a I want to bury you into the ground mentality, kind of like what we loved about Penny Sewell last year. Uh, he just played at Northern Iowa as opposed to playing, you know, at Oregon or somewhere else uh, at his size and his frame. He can add more weight to that six, seven, three, two and one sounds big. But if you're six, seven, you can play left tackle, or right tackle at three fifty pretty comfortably. And uh, another dude who's just a, a really good athlete. But it's that mentality that you love on the offensive line. Guys, you're just like, I'm going to put you into the ground. I'm going to bury your face mask into the ground and I'm going to make sure that nobody sees you on this play. Uh, those guys are my favorite on the offensive line. And then a guy who reminds me a lot, and, and I'm not the only one who's made this comp because of the build, uh, but reminds me a lot of Jordan Mailata is uh, Daniel Filele. Um, who is left tackle, uh, played at Minnesota, row the boat. Um, 6'8", 384 is what he weighed in at, at the combine. Another dude who's just so big and a freaky athletic for a guy that size. Um, he definitely needs to cut some weight in order to play. I mean, unless he can carry it. There's a few guys who can carry that weight, you know, uh, uh, Trent Brown, Malata. But those guys are like the rare of the rare when we're talking about athletes. Uh, 
if he got down a little bit of the weight, I think he could hang in that same kind of class. And, and right now, I think because of the success we've seen out of these really big and freak athlete guys at left tackle that teams work through. Now, granted, Malata had Jeff Statlin, who's arguably the best offensive line coach in the NFL. You know, having that goes a long way. Uh, but if the right team took him there in the second round, he could be a really, really good pro because they just don't it's you can't teach six, eight, three, eighty five. You know, you there's, there's no amount of coaching <laughs> that's ever going to be able to get you to be that, you know, um, and, and if he can get that kind of coaching and, and, and work up to it, I mean, I think he can be really good. It's a big reason why I think a lot of people like Evan Neal, too. I mean, his head, his yeah. offensive line coach was Doug Marone, the guy who literally the year before was the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, and before that was the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. Um, when you're getting that kind of coaching on a position group like the offensive line, you're getting extremely high quality coaching. And I think, again, Evan Neal by far is the favorite here. Stay away from Charles Cross, uh, though I wish him all the best. He's also well, he's only a sophomore, right? He's coming out as a redshirt sophomore, so he's not super experienced. And that also concerns me there, especially two years playing for uh, for Mike Leach and, and your passer. But people fall in love with the body, man. And people fall in love with what you do at the combine, which is why I say the eye in the sky don't fly. Uh, all right. That's all we got today. Fantastic pod. Shout out to Vito. Shout out to Ryan Leaf. What a guy. Uh, what a oh, legend. Yeah. Um, thank you for him for, for coming on and, and talking with us. That was uh, a really fun treat and hope you guys enjoyed it. Tuesday. Read option mock draft 2.0 coming to you for the 2022 season. Uh, we're going to go pick by pick, do the first round and, uh, and we'll catch you guys up on some of the NBA stuff there too on, on Friday's pod. But remember Friday, we will be doing NBA stuff uh, beforehand. We're going to do come in probably around like pick 20 ish in the draft and we'll start recording. So you'll get our instant reaction from the first round of the NFL draft a week from today. Uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of do the pod as the rest of the draft is coming. So you'll get our instant reaction to some of the picks there in the back half of the first round. So for Vito, shout out to Scotty, enjoy the wedding in Austin. Once again, thank you to Ryan leaf. I'm Jeff. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. We love you. We thank you. And as always take it easy. Everybody.